Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Welcome back to Josh Marquis, former Clatsop County DA. He was on Rational in Portland before. If you want to hear his views about things like prosecuting crime and the death penalty, he may have some more of that today. But in particular, that and his background were covered on the last episode. Please check that out and take a look at it. Josh has a incredible career. He's written a book at least one, uh, numerous law review articles about the death penalty. He testified in front of Congress. He has met Joe Biden. All of these things were discussed on this last episode, and I linked to some of his publications and also some of his video from, it's on YouTube, it's very cool testimony and, and cool history. He knows so many people. He knows he knows Nancy Rommelman. I mean, it's kind of incredible the amount of people you know, Josh. Welcome. Thank you for coming. And I know you uh, were going to tell me a Portland story. And I told you before you start, we got a press record. So I can't wait to hear about this. Well, thank you, Chris. And thanks for having me back. And if anybody, uh, for some reason, wants to get more of my stuff, my wife has prevailed on me for the last 23 years to um, organize a lot of my writings because some people take up golf and other people go scuba diving, I write. I, I find short form, meaning 700 to 1,000 words, very easy. So I've been published in the New York Times and the New Yorker and the LA Times and then, of course, the Oregonian and a lot of smaller newspapers. So for the last 23 years, um, there are probably two or 300 op-eds that are gathered together at a website called coastda.com, C-O-A-S-T-D-A.com, which also happens to be a variegation of my email address. So it's easy to access. It's organized uh, both by date and by subject matter, and it almost is exclusively various issues about the criminal justice system, many of which are, are now relevant, more relevant, because they deal, now that I'm out of office, I was the elected district attorney for 25 years in Clatsop County, and for 12 years before that, I was the chief prosecutor first in Newport, then in Bend. I've worked as a deputy DA in Eugene. I've worked for the California Attorney General's Office in Los Angeles. Uh, but the vast majority of my 40 years as an attorney has been in Oregon. And I have never lived in Portland, but I've always loved Portland. Um, this has always been the big city, the city that, um, whether it's now my wife or previously my girlfriends would come to, you know, stay at the Benson or the Hilton and go to a great restaurant, almost all of which are gone now, L'Omelette, L'Auberge, um, all kinds of others. But Portland was always a great go-to city. So my tiny little Portland horror story, which I know we get pushback, those of us who believe, like you and me, that, oh, these are a bunch of whiners, or, you know, they just think that there there was some idyllic era in which Portland was great, or they you know, hate Portland. I don't think so anymore, Josh. Based on Aaron Schmaltz's poll that was done by DHM, which is, I think, the most reputable 
polling firm in certainly that's local. And they came up with the questions, not Aaron. The majority of Portlanders agree with you now. I, it's true. And, I, and it, it, you know, I don't think any of us, I'm sure those of you who live in Portland, I don't, um, don't take any joy in this. It's it's not Schadenfreude where it's like, oh, oh boy. It's certainly not. Um, it's sad. And, Especially for people and, like me. And it's also here. not just a question of, oh, I remember in the 80s when there were these great restaurants. You know, for example, restaurants change all the time. There are restaurants that were great in the 80s and then they're great in the 90s. This is something different. So my little story, and I don't mean to hype it this much, but it was so... Um, one of the doctors I go see is uh, on near Trendy Third Street, near Twenty Third, and uh, so, so I that's have North, a, Northwest Twenty Third, Northwest Twenty Third, Portland's Knob Hill is what we call it, okay. or, yeah. it's or a, um, Uptown, you know. or uh, Northwest Twenty Third was like the premier shop. I would say the premier shopping area, certainly in like the early two thousands. We used to have a big Williams Sonoma, and there was a big Restoration Hardware, and a lot of those places are gone, yeah. but. But it, you know, it still There's maintains still some great ones. a little bit of of it, and and this particular doctor who who has this kind of a specialty practice, really nice guy, older guy, and it was a nice office building, and so I was running late, so I admit this, I went to McDonald's. I'm ashamed to say because <laughs> I had made a commitment to you to to be here by a certain time, and I was running late, so I go, I I remember vaguely, I can honestly say I'd never been there before, but I remember that there was a McDonald's at 23rd and Burnside or thereabouts. So I find the place, I pull into the parking lot, and immediately I notice that there are some very sketchy characters who appear to be doing what either might be a drug deal or maybe just trying to purchase hamburgers from a, a window. Which Is this turned, the McDonald's on West Burnside? I, yes. Was, I think this drug deal was the purchase of a McDonald's hamburger. Because when I realized that I couldn't open the doors, I realized that this one tiny window, hmm. which often would be used to transact drugs, was in fact the public window. The only way to make a purchase. So at first, I didn't think it was. At first, I thought it was a drug deal I that it. I just happened to cross. Then I realized that it was, although the signs up says McDonald's and some, doesn't say no walk-ins. It just, you know, I had some advertisement. Turns out the only way you can <laughs> frequent this particular McDonald's is to get in line in the middle of the day in your car and wait 20 oh, or 30 minutes for, you know, really subnormal food. So and we've again, only ever used the drive-thru. Are you saying you cannot go th into the interior of the McDonald's? That on is exactly what I'm saying. On you know again in a nice part of Portland, in the middle of the day, on a weekday. It's a Wednesday, right? Yeah, Wednesday afternoon. It wow. is a Wednesday afternoon. So to me, that's just yet, you know. And, you know, I'm sure the naysayers will say, "Oh no, this is like Target, and they're really using this as an excuse to, you know, do something." I don't think that's the case. I think it's just further evidence of the slow boiling of the frog, which many people, I, I overuse this analogy, but it's the idea that if you, uh, if you try to boil a frog, which is, sounds like a cruel and horrible thing to do, you can't do it quickly because the animals will, will realize you're boiling them. But if you boil it slowly, you can. And that appears to be, and every time I come to Portland, this seems to be even more underlined that, um, that the things that are getting bad are getting worse on an incremental level. 
and that one can, you know, one can say, like some people say, oh, there's still some lovely shops and there's a great hotel here and you can get a terrific meal there. Those things are all true. But as an integrated city, which is what a city is, it's, you know, people block by block and the ability to say hello to both people you know and people you don't know. And then you fold this over in with law enforcement, what I hope we're going to talk about, which is, includes Measure 110, which is that um, as I was traveling recently, both out of uh, the state and abroad, I had the opportunity to talk answer people's questions about our bold experiment with Measure 110. People said, oh, they've sort of decriminalized You drugs. went to Europe. Yes, I was in Europe, including Portugal, interestingly. Uh, and when I explained what that meant, they were shocked because we haven't decriminalized drugs. We've legalized them. There is absolutely no law enforcement response. There's a medical response, which there should be. I mean, you can't have you can't have a heart and be a human being and see somebody overdosing on the street and not provide medical assistance however Agreed, but we don't have that really either i mean we're triaging <laughs> uh, and we're going from overdose to overdose the firefighters are overwhelmed their union came on rational portland on this podcast to talk about it um anybody who's interested in that go back and look at the episode with Isaac McLennan and Mariah Fuge spoke specifically about how there's a fair amount of burnout because they're going into overdose calls um, and they're reviving people and resuscitating people and crawling in and out of tents and they really just didn't think that they'd be doing that as firefighters but now that that has become a big part of their jobs and you know we just can't get to everybody we don't have the treatment infrastructure either. Well, what I understand, some of this is anecdotal, but I still know a lot of people in emergency services. We have a taste of this over on the coast where I live. But one of the things I'm hearing from emergency responders, and I had a conversation just a few weeks ago with one, was we have to triage these calls. We can't. That's right. And if somebody is, in theory, has an obstructed airway, meaning they're not breathing and they're dying, they have to be given priority, even if it is their third overdose in a month, even if they attempt to basically get so high that they almost die, you still ethically and I guess legally, I'm I'm an attorney, I should know the answer to this, but I think they're obligated to provide this service no matter how much of a drain it is. And I believe that there has been discussion in, again, in Portland, although I think it's been suppressed about how many um, non-drug-related overdose calls are being skipped over or ignored or triaged out because the paramedics simply have to go from a uh, person is not breathing, they've overdosed. And at some point, you, I mean, that's what triage is all about. How many people do you save? I'm not suggesting that anybody deliberately let somebody die who's made the decision that they're going to continually overdose. But the system clearly can't handle it. Now, one could argue that maybe we should have a, uh, a, a public um, uh, ambulance service and that the ambulances all ought to be run by the fire department. I don't know the positives and negatives of it. I don't think the fire department is generally keen on taking that over, and they don't. Largely in the United States, almost everywhere except maybe New York City, um, uh, 
paramedics are run by private companies that do do contracts, but they're overwhelmed, and they're overwhelmed even in a you know a civilized middle class community like Portland and like Oregon. And people might say, "Well, that's not affecting me." You know, <laughs> you know, my wife slash son is not slamming fentanyl, so they're not going to come to my house. That may well be, but the fact of the matter is that when your grandpa or God forbid, you know, some other member of your family suddenly can't breathe or is having a cardiac event, the same number of calls are going to be uh, pressing on the system. And it may very well be that they're simply not going to get to your loved one because we have so many overdoses. And let's be really clear on what Measure 110 has done. Oregon is now the absolute leader in the United States in fatal overdoses and by extension, non-fatal overdoses. So the, the law has been in effect for three years. The argument was, well, you know, got to give them time to get the systems in place. A quarter billion dollars was diverted uh, from marijuana taxes and other non-tax, traditional tax funds. Uh, and a lot of nonprofits were were gilded very nicely. And yet we have in addition to having the worst overdose problem, Oregon is also dead last in the United States in providing uh, necessary services for both um, emergency overdoses and then secondarily for um, longer-term treatment. Uh, one of the things, many things that I Josh, thought was- Josh, i got to stop you for one second. Certainly. You know there's a NYU Grossman School of Medicine uh, paper out September 27th that a lot of people are waving around. I don't know if you've seen it. But they talk about in that paper how the pointing to Measure 110 was um, actually something that was uh, was actually something that was um, anecdotal, and they think that um, I'm turning this down because there's a video that's attached to this. There's a video that's attached to this article, but this, there's an article in Time about it. But there's actually there is a paper. Um, and this is the one that was co-authored by the woman I think who is one of the chief petitioners for Measure One Ten, is it not? I don't know. The, one of them is Corey Davis, an assistant clinical professor at NYU's Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy. And what they say is that overdoses were going up before, and that overdoses continue to go up. So the paper is in the um, Journal of American Medicine. I'm pulling it up right now, and we can see. So it's. Um, Bianca Rivera? No, it's not. I, is the thesis of this paper that Measure 110 is working or not working? Um, it's not about whether it's working. It's more about the idea that, um, so what it says at the, in the abstract, in the key points, it, the question is, this is in uh, GMA Network, and I will link to this in the show notes. Were laws that fully or partially decriminalized drug possession in Oregon and Washington associated with fatal drug overdose rates one year post-implementation. And what they say is the findings of the study suggest that legal changes to remove or decrease criminal penalties for drug possession are not associated with the fatal drug overdose rate one year post-implementation. Further research is needed to examine the medium and long-term consequences of these legal changes. I believe that's the same paper. I'm not sure, but I'm not looking at it. That had as one of its co-authors and a Portland woman who's not an MD, who nonetheless is was one of the chief co-petitioners for Measure 110. Yeah, it looks like I don't see any MDs. I see a PhD, Master's in Public Health. I see another Master's in Public Health, 
and I see a PhD, master's in public health. <laughs> well, obvious. So, so no matter. Oh, Haven Wheelock is one of them. Yes, that's yeah. what. There we go. Haven Wheelock for that's master's the in I was public health. Of. And yeah, yeah, th- this. No, you're right about that. And another is a uh, master's in public health, and a and a JD. So in other words, no real Corey doctors. My, my father was a PhD, and it was a standing joke in our family that um, yeah, the only time actually. my father ever got called doctor is when he needed a reservation at a restaurant or a hotel. The you, fact- know, you know, Josh, I'm looking at this right now, and you're right. There are no MDs. There are no medical doctors. <laughs> attached to this study that is no what was shameful about this study i'm familiar with it now i wanted to make sure it was the same thank one. you for pointing that out it's in jama the journal of the american medical association yeah, Haven, arguably Haven is the, the most prestigious medical journal right and this basically was making the argument a year out which should be over two years ago now Me- measure um, 110 was passed in May of 2020, went into technical legal effect, I believe, eight months later. I say technical legal effect because as soon as the measure was on the ballot, before it was even passed, friendly governments like Portland and others started ramping down uh, enforcement on the theory, well, no one's, you know, no one's going to be charged with this anyway. And so the claim was that this was decriminalization. It wasn't decriminalization. It was taking all basically legal involvement whatsoever out of it and diverting it in theory to treatment oriented and taking the money, using the money largely from marijuana or cannabis taxes and diverting it to largely nonprofits. In other words, non-accountable ways. And Haven Wheelock, one of the people, was a her organization was a direct beneficiary. This would be as if I wrote a paper about how the death penalty um, clearly saved lives and didn't disclose that I was a capital prosecutor and that I was using the money to help prosecute people for capital murder. I mean, it's a and, and the fact that it's JAMA is even more outrageous. And the idea that, because uh, there are a lot of- It is of, shocking. I, I agree is. with you. I didn't expect to find that she was listed, and I didn't expect to find what you just pointed out, which is, is that there are no MDs listed as, as co-authoring this study or this paper. It's, it's so brazen. That That's what astonishes me in a way. I mean- it, JAMA is like the American Bar Association, which I used to belong to. I don't, for non-lawyers who don't know this, um, just like the American Medical Association, membership in the ABA is not mandatory. Uh, Membership in the Oregon uh, uh, Bar Association is mandatory for people like you and me. We have to belong if we want to practice law. Membership in the American uh, Bar Association is not mandatory. I chose to be a member for many years until I just couldn't stand it anymore. And less than, I think, one in 10 or one in 20 lawyers in America. But, But this JAMA article was just another example of the establishment, the political establishment in Oregon, putting its emprunteur on Measure 110, knowing that the stats were coming in horribly. Now, they can claim, and they will claim, oh, this is just anecdotal. It's complicated, because you can't draw a straight line between, let's say, making it a mandatory felony uh, to deal drugs that you should go to prison for five years. I'm not suggesting that, but just let's take that as a harsh 
idea of, of criminal and say, well, what is the downstream effect of that? Well, we do know, for example, that um, violent crime was at an all-time high in Oregon in the 1980s and early 90s. Oregon was one of 33 states in America that passed sentencing reform law. Now, real sentencing reform, not sentencing make it easier. And that meant different things in different places. In Oregon, it meant something called Measure 11, which simply meant when the judge said, I'm sentencing you to eight years in prison for the violent rape of this woman, it meant you were going to do eight years in prison. And when they said, I'm sentencing you to life for murder, it meant 25 years. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily harsher. It was just truth in sentencing. Now, these laws manifested themselves differently in different states. States like California used a three strikes law. And these are inherently flawed. Opponents have said, oh, sometimes the strike was stealing a pizza. And clearly the intention of the voters wasn't to send someone to prison for the rest of the life for stealing a pizza. That's true. So what you try to do is organize something that is rationally related to the conduct you're trying to prevent. But when it comes to drugs, let's be clear that in Oregon, we made a policy decision in the 1970s that ordinary drug users should not go to prison. I don't disagree with this. In 1973, Oregon adopted something called um, well, uh, uh, not sentencing guidelines, that was adopted in 1989. But they adopted a different kind of sentencing plan that essentially put crimes against people, murder, rape, robbery at the top, and crimes uh, against society, which included things like forgery, car stealing, and simple possession and use of drugs at the bottom end. Until... Measure uh, 110 passed, it was literally impossible for a judge to sentence someone to a prison sentence for possession of drugs, even if it was their 27th conviction. The maximum sentence under sentencing guidelines, which was a subset adopted in 1989, was something called the matrix, and it can be found on the internet. And the maximum sentence was 30 days. Didn't matter how bad the person's record was. Didn't matter if they had four prior rape convictions. If their conviction was for possession of heroin or possession of methamphetamine, the absolute max the judge could impose is 30 days. And, and by the way, Kristen, unless the judge could make a finding that there was adequate space in the jail of that particular county, they were constrained to only give one-third of that sentence for up to 10 days. So when we're talking about what Oregon used to do, as if we're talking about within the re recorded lifespan of most adults, meaning back to 1973, we weren't sending people to prison for drugs possession, nor should we. But we've gone so far beyond that that in basically 2017 or 2018, the legislature moved basically felony drug possession to misdemeanor. And then with the passage of 2020, it literally removed the criminal law. And some people may remember drug court. A drug court, in fact, in many ways started off in Portland. Mike Schrunk, who was then the district attorney, uh, put it together. And the idea of drug court made sense. It was that the people who had as their primary problem drugs as opposed to 
primarily being an anti-social person who attacks women on the street um, and takes those people and diverts them from traditional uh, penalty systems and puts them in a court where usually once a week they would come in to the courtroom and the judge would say, okay, Mr. Probation Officers, how's the person done on their drug test? Well, they took three drug tests and one of them was dirty, but two of them were clean. Well, you're doing better, you know, Josh there. That, that, that's a little bit better. I'm, I'm going to suspend that five days in jail and I'm going to give you a coupon. I'm not making this up for like $10 at McDonald's uh, because I, I want to acknowledge the fact that you're, you know, I know it's hard to stop, but you're doing something. But if you test dirty next week, I'm going to give you two days in jail. I'm not making these numbers up. This this was what was used. It was the carrot and stick approach. It was a very much as much as possible one-on-one with the judges, the probation officers, and the users. All of that vanished with Measure 110 because the idea because now in Oregon the law is that that's coercive, illegal, and has no place, and that essentially somewhere out there but not run by the government and nothing that we can put our finger on is some kind of program which someone with a fentanyl or methamphetamine addiction is somehow going to be drawn to. Because I, one of the things I think you've talked about on this program and I know is true in universal experience is virtually everybody in our society has some family member who is touched by substance abuse. Uh, Absolutely, I, me I, included. Yeah, I mean, I have, let's see, two cousins that were alcoholics. One died from it. And on my wife's side, I have, she had a cousin that died of a methamphetamine overdose. That's not uncommon. I come from an upper middle class family. They had advantages. It still happens. So it's kind of a universal American experience. And we could debate about, you know, why is that? It shouldn't be, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It's there. But my point is that, we most of us have had this experience of knowing people that have had serious substance abuse problems and you know what is the answer well some people find jesus if that works for them great um some people uh you know bottom out but generally speaking it's very very rare for someone who has a true physical drug addiction to a drug like heroin, fentanyl, or methamphetamine to simply decide that they are going to overcome it and stop using. It just doesn't happen. Josh, back to the study that we were talking about that was published in the Journal of American Medicine. What's interesting is I was looking for other journals where Haven Wheelock has published. And if you go to Sage journals.sagepub.com and I'll put this into um, the show notes but there's there's another article called decriminalization of drug possession in Oregon analysis and early lessons and this is first published April 6 2023 what's interesting to me about this one and I did not see this in JAMA now if anybody sees this in JAMA and wants to correct me in in that article please do I would love to see that there I didn't see that in here here um, in Sage, there's a declaration of conflict of interest. There is. Yep. And, okay. it, and, and not not in the, I did not see one in the JAMA article. I did not see one in the article from September that's quoted in Time that talks about how decriminalization did not lead to an increase in overdoses. <laughs> it was not in there. But it's in this one that talks about, like, just sort of a, 
an analysis of decriminalization, um, allegedly, and it says declaration of conflicting interests. The authors declare the following potential conflicts of interest with respect to the research authorship or publication of this article. Drug Policy Alliance is a nonprofit organization <laughs> advocating for drug policy reform, including decriminalization of drug possession across the United States. Drug Policy Action, the sister political organization of the Drug Policy Alliance, was the primary funder in support of Measure 110. Haven Wheelock was a chief petitioner of Measure 110. Outside In, where Haven Wheelock works, that's my editorial that is not in SAGE, I'll continue with the the SAGE um, conflict of interest, is a recipient of grant funding made available through Measure 110. So Haven Wheelock was not only a chief petitioner of Measure 110, outside in where Haven Wheelock works is a recipient of grant funding made available through Measure 110. The Health Justice Recovery Alliance, which is here in Oregon, is an advocacy organization dedicated to ensuring Measure 110 is successfully implemented in a way centering the needs of communities most impacted by the war on drugs. Now, let me explain in political terms what the HJRA is called. It's called a cutout. A cutout in in politics or actually in criminal law enforcement is is often in describing uh, criminal organizations, and I'm not saying the HJRA is, but where you have an organization that is created in order to give legitimacy to an uh, something that has a very different. In this case, let's 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 be clear on who these people are. The 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 Drug Policy Alliance was created largely by George Soros. And he and their like-minded people, Peter Lewis, who founded and owned Progressive Insurance Company. Um, the, I'm trying to remember the guy who founded Netflix. Some very, very wealthy people who I am not doubting sincerely believed in their progressive model, which is less reliance on prison, less reliance on law enforcement, decriminalizing drugs, decriminalizing other things. But the DPA, the Drug Policy Alliance, has been the leading figure in the United States in sponsoring, again, cutouts, local groups like HJRA. What that means is, I doubt very much, I don't know, but I doubt very much if the Health Justice Recovery Alliance existed before my guess is 2019. It probably was created by um, the health, by the Drug Policy Alliance or its political cutout in order to, again, these people would say, well, this is the policy we believe in. And one can argue, well, that's, you know, it's their money and they can use it for whatever they want to. I was very involved uh, to very little effect in the fight against Measure 110. (laughs) I can say with, you know, both, I guess, some degree of, uh, of of pride and shame that I was outstanding in a field by myself. There were very few public figures opposing Measure 110. I tried to get... There were, I, that's right. Mike Marshall was the only one. Kevin Barton. Um, I mean, you. There are very few people I can think of. Well, and I can tell you, even in the law enforcement community, I had retired at that point for about a year from being an elected DA. And without naming particular names, most of my former colleagues took the position that, look, this is a fight that we don't want to get into. It's not one we're going to win. We're going to have to, you know, fight it out other ways, and it won't be as bad as it looks. And my response was, no, it is going to be as bad as it looks. This is going to essentially delete 
any governmental or law enforcement involvement in suppressing drugs and fighting back against the criminal. Now, the argument the other side will use is, well, look, the federal government, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, they are still out making these busts, and it's true. You pick up the Oregonian or you watch news, and there'll be a picture of the Oregon State Police standing next to a car and 300,000 blue-gray tablets of bogus oxycodone, which in fact is fentanyl, um, have been seized. And it's true, the state police does that, the DEA does it. But it's just like the bad old days of the 70s when heroin and meth were coming up. And that is, we thought we were suppressing drugs by choking off a tiny percentage of what was coming up and down the I-5 corridor. And the answer was, we weren't. The other thing that's different about fentanyl and methamphetamine than, say, cocaine and heroin, which a lot of people will remember, particularly from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, is the latter two drugs, cocaine and heroin, require a natural substance from which they are created. In heroin's case, it derives from the opium poppy, which has to be grown in certain areas of either South America, Turkey, Southeast Asia, in turn then becomes morphine, and in turn then becomes heroin. It's a process. It requires a certain amount of chemistry and a lot of transshipping. By the same token, cocaine grows on the... uh, you know, on the hills underneath the Andes, in certain parts of South America, and in certain parts of Southeast Asia. Contrast that with fentanyl and methamphetamine. These are totally synthetic drugs. They can be made absolutely anywhere. They don't require any naturally occurring substance, and the science in order to make them is pretty basic. And instead of having to, say, grow hundreds of acres of opium poppies, as was done in Afghanistan, which is then turned into morphine, which is then turned into heroin. Now you can have a lab in the restroom of an abandoned hotel with a group of chemicals, and you can make millions of doses of fentanyl, each one of which is probably going to be 50 to 100 times as strong And people might say, well, why would drug dealers make a drug that kills their customers? Because they don't care. It's not because they're intending to kill their customers. It's that there's an almost limitless supply of people that will basically walk the razor's edge in terms of getting as high as they can. And one of the things that's truly perverse that drug enforcement officers and drug treatment people will tell you is that a drug's... um, reputation in a community is often based on how dangerous it is and how likely you are to overdose from it. Um, But I think part of what's so insidious is they wouldn't be so so successful at selling this if it weren't, if if the fentanyl weren't literally in, I mean, the, the PPB will tell you virtually every time they test drugs, there's fentanyl in them. And, and they'll, they will say, please assume, and every medical professional in Portland will tell you, please assume that any drug you buy on the street has fentanyl in it, because it probably does. And that's true throughout the United States, basically, but it's particularly true on the West Coast. San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. I, I've learned that insidious. just in the last year. I find it astonishing, you would think, because generally the drug market for um, – 
stimulant. Mean, speed right. was different than the drug right. for opiates. And so the que- <laughs> and, and Sam Quinones has written quite a bit about this in the Atlantic. And an, another thing is, you know, people would say, well, in general, who's going to buy a drug that that's going to kill you? That's going to cause you to drop dead, and that's generally true. Um, and, and it'll cause, cause fentanyl will cause you to drop dead. In, I mean, if you compare it to something like heroin, I mean, heroin's child's play compared to fentanyl. Ask any firefighter, ask any police officer, ask any doctor. But now that it's in the supply chain and it's everywhere, if you're addicted to drugs and you need opioids or you need meth or whatever your pleasure is, if it's just in the drugs that you're normally buying, now all of a sudden you're on fentanyl too. And you have, no, unless you engage in recovery process, if you're an addict, you have no choice. That's absolutely correct. And, and then even back when I was working drugs in the 80s and 90s in a very different era, um, the way these drugs were marketed illegally was often with a skull and crossbones. In other words, the drug marketers marketed the drug as this is so heavy duty, it could kill you. Now, I don't know what the pathology is. You'd have to talk to a psychologist or somebody in, in drug recovery, but you're right. Method, I mean, a fentanyl is not only completely overtaken the um, so-called natural opioids, which is heroin essentially, and uh, synthetic opioids like oxycodone and oxycontin, but since it's so much cheaper to make, it also is overcome amphetamines. Now, the part that's particularly insidious about amphetamines is amphetamines, almost unlike any other drug, has direct uh, behavioral consequences. Someone under the influence of, an, of a pure opioid, whether it was a one administered in an emergency room legitimately, uh, a, dr- a prescription from a doctor that was diverted, or a completely um, bogus uh, dose of fentanyl, the medical consequences of that are going to be sedation, going to sleep to the point of maybe almost dying, but generally it won't make you aggressive. Methamphetamine, on the other hand, um, causes aggression, particularly sexual aggression. Um, One of the things that we saw a lot of in the 80s and 90s were child abuse cases. And a lot of people thought we were just making this up because it just sounded like the ultimate boogeyman. But for whatever reason, methamphetamine really charged up uh, the men who was taking its uh, sexual behavior and essentially to the point where they would have sex with anyone or anything uh, that was available. Now, as you point out, it's gotten so bizarre now because, um, of course, the addicts don't really have the ability to distinguish between what drugs they're taking and what drugs they're not taking. And the 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 reason that, we're, that we've started off, I think Quinones, who actually graduated from the same high school I did in California, Claremont, although 15 years after me, um, is that on the West Coast, the supply lines that were developed by the Sinaloa cartel, by the Zetas, they all are in existence. And sometimes it's taken years for other parts of the country. It's not so much that the drugs took that long, but the but the trust levels and the supply lines. Quinones talks about it in his book Dreamland, where he talked about the Sinaloa cartel in Portland, Oregon in particular, and the 
as he put it, clean-cut young men in their new blue jeans who could be trusted to come to your house in, uh, in, in an upper-middle-class part of Portland and give you heroin that was relatively clean. That was 20 years ago. And, and what's happening now... And, you know, some of those people listening may be saying, oh, you know, this marquee guy, he's just trying to create, you know, more business for his friends in law enforcement. Well, for one thing... I'm retired. I don't have a direct financial interest, unlike Ms. Havelock. I'm not getting grants. Wheelock, Haven Wheelock. Wheelock, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, I, I'm not... You're not getting grants I'm not from getting grants some sort or, of centrist or paid or speaking engagements. right-wing or law enforcement uh, organization nope. I, for I, talking I do, I do this content. for free. I, I do this because I enjoy it. and But also because um, I wasn't alone in terms of seeing this. I mean, most of us base... What we said, the best predictor. But there were few of you. There were some of us who said, watch out, be careful. And it's not and our question. And there weren't enough of, of you. And it's not a question of, of saying, oh, we were right and you were wrong. Okay, let's call it a tabula rasa. You know, let's start from fresh. We now know what we know. Okay, people, people of goodwill, and I'm sure many of the people out there were, they wanted to help addicts. Okay, we're now three years in. We're looking out the window in downtown Portland, Oregon, to people literally, wandering into walls. Yes, yes. <laughs> we're, we're literally seeing it as we look out this window in this room. Yes, right. that's right. That this, I mean, I, I was struck when I first came here, Kristen, that this was one of the premier addresses in Portland for office buildings. And, um, and that now, although it still may be above maybe the second or third floor, as I look to you across the way, I see graffiti all along the the other view. I stayed at the downtown Portland Hilton uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, the Wait, level of that? security oh is gosh. now such they no longer have room service because they don't want to allow anybody, even wow. with card keys, uh, any longer. Um, and and you could say, well, you know, what a first world problem. You know, you're worried about getting room service. That's a standard thing in a hotel in America. <laughs> of course it is. And what will happen in case people don't get it, because is you know I I was proud of bringing uh, a big national conference here in 2008, the National District Attorneys Association, because it involved bringing about four or five hundred hotel rooms to the Portland Hilton. That was long before any of this happened. But the point is that. It, Portland and other places are competing with all these other places in America. San Antonio, Texas, Los Angeles, California, not doing so well. Uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The people who are pitching Portland are going to say, oh, you know, what the beautiful parks, true. You know, the, the lover, lovely river walk, true. But, you know, can we tell people it's safe to leave your, your car locked? No, it's not safe to leave anything in your car. I, I took everything out of my car when I came up to this, and I, I, I brought everything with me, and I even considered leaving the doors unlocked because that's what some police officers have told me, that it is better to basically make it easier for them to go through your car because they probably aren't going to want the stuff that's bolted down. And then you don't have to pay the deductible for the broken window. Right. Well, I'll tell you a story about that, actually, because I can't resist. About 10 years ago, when I was still holding office, I was doing my duty as the uh, representative of the State DA's Association, and we were attempting to get 
the legislature to increase the penalties for deliberate vandalism. And for most people, particularly upper middle class people, you know that if you ha that if somebody were just this is what made me think about it. If your car is vandalized um, and somebody takes it, it'll be covered by what's called comprehensive. Uh, generally, you know the insurance that you're required to carry by the state simply is liability insurance. So that in case it's your fault and you run into somebody else, you're covered. Collision insurance is so that when you're at fault and you hit somebody, your coverage is paid. Comprehensive is when it's nobody's fault or a third party or an uninsured party. So what was happening this particular day is we were trying to require company, uh, insurance companies to provide a certain level of comprehensive. And I cannot remember the name of the, of the legislator he was an attorney in private practice in Portland. I can't remember if he was a Democrat or Republican. And what he said, I will never forget this. It was, he was going, I don't see what the big deal is. It's only a thousand dollar deductible. I mean, who can't take care of that? And I boiled over momentarily and I said, Senator, let me explain how this works. You know, there are probably 40 to 60% of your constituents for whom $1,000 in cash is going to make the difference between them keeping their job and losing it, their kid going to school or not. And I think that's part of the problem, Kristen, is there is still a disconnect in this country between those of us who participate in making the laws or or do that, and a lot of other people. There was an interesting article in The Atlantic about 10 years ago about how something like 50% of Americans could not come up with $400. I don't know if you remember that. I remember being shocked by that. But the corollary to that is what happens when people are victims of crime that are in turn generated by drug-related crimes, and it will be life-changing for them. They won't be able to continue going to their job or taking their kids to school or shopping at a safe place or whatever else. And I am, I do not think the apocalypse is upon us. I don't think that Portland is going to be swallowed up into a giant hole. But I do think that we are reaching the, the tipping point, the tipping point beyond which people that make decisions about whether to invest money in things like hotels and shopping centers and um, other things that involve lots of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, are just going to make the decision, you know what, I'll go with uh, San Antonio, Texas or Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they are. And they are. And, and, I mean, Multnomah County is losing a billion dollars a year, according to Willamette Week, in taxpayer dollars. But you know what the response is from the other side. They're saying, oh, no, Target and Fred Meyer and these other companies, they're just using this as an excuse to try to basically uh, – the excuse I've seen them use is that these are areas where the unions have been successful at, at organizing, and they're just trying to push back and shut down the unions. Yeah, I've heard that, but the that doesn't answer the Willamette Week article, which says people are moving. It's not just companies. People are leaving Portland. For the first time in a very long time, people are leaving Portland. And there was another article to that effect. And then the Oregonian, interestingly, basically is doing um, sort of counter-propaganda, which looks suspiciously like the articles that used to be run in uh, Soviet uh, 
newspapers uh, before Glasnost in 1989 when the, you know Pravda would say, glorious news, five-year plan has been successful again, comrades. I haven't seen that. What's their take? Um, their take is that, oh, actually, if you look at the numbers differently, people are actually moving into Oregon, that all these numbers about going bad, they're just wrong. It's just corporate America wanting to take advantage of a temporary situation. You know, and part of I that, I guess, is, from. I... Is, is a desire to have things look better than they are. I mean, you know, I think nothing would make me happier that if the next time I came to Portland, there was nobody urinating in the uh, parking space I was going to, that I didn't have to worry about cleaning out the inside of my car, and that when I looked out the window of Jake's restaurant, I wasn't face-to-face with a psychotic homeless person who was displaying their private parts to everybody in the dining table. And, uh, and that's standard. <laughs> that's become standard. See, but, yeah, And I don't know... I don't know if some of the people out there don't believe this. And, and when I say some of the people, I'm talking about, you know, the governor, the leaders of the Democratic Party who run the Oregon State Legislature. I honestly don't know. And that part scares me. Because if they can convince themselves that this is all just part of a political narrative and that these are just, we're just people that are angry because our people didn't get elected, um, you know, part of it is why I actually am more outspoken in some ways than I was before reti- when I retired because I take the position of, look, I'm not running for office. I'm not seeking to get elected either to be district attorney or to go into the legislature. I have no financial interest in this at all, nor do a lot of other people. I mean, you do this podcast, and as far as I can tell, it has absolutely no relation to the practice of law you here engaged. Yeah, zero. <laughs> In fact, it may even irritate some of the people who might be your clients, but I, you probably just don't care. I just, I haven't felt it yet, but maybe that's coming. Maybe I'm going to be, you know, canceled. Hurting. Who knows? Yes. Probably not. I, th- You know, I think people like hearing the truth. And, you know, the people we would expect to hear it from is the media. And I'll give the Willamette Week credit. They continue to do it. But they not have done the Oregonian. An incredible job. I agree. I think uh, Sophie Peel. I think Anthony Effinger. I think the people at Willamette Week are just doing really good work. Um, I, I, the Oregonian. I don't know about. Although what I will say is that you know, in doing some research about the amount of tax dollars leaving Multnomah County, the Oregonian, a woman named Christine De Leon, admitted that Multnomah County. There's a the headline is Multnomah County lost a record one billion with a B, in income between 2020 and 2021 as residents moved away. Resi- uh, the article begins with Multnomah County residents who moved away took more than a billion dollars in income with them. Uh, remote work allowed them to keep jobs in cities but live anywhere. And they here's the point. They don't want to live here. Uh, I, I, and I think Aaron's poll that uh, the, the police union commissioned the um, – Portland Police Association commissioned by DHM. Again, DHM came up with the questions. Aaron and the police union did not come up with the questions. Aaron talks about it on his episode. In that poll, people are dissatisfied with Portland. They're not happy here. Well, and I, what was interesting about that poll is it wasn't particularly partisan. It didn't fall No, it wasn't. Along. It was mostly Democrats answering. And they were just saying we're sense. fed up and, and we don't see you know, any silver lining to it, and we don't see it getting better. And there was a sense of hopelessness 
um, that was scary. And because um, there's so many things that flow from that. I mean, will we raise our family here? Will we invest in a business here? Will we invest in a house here? I mean, one of the decisions, I, I mean, just on an individual basis, I'm at a point in my life where I may, my wife and I may decide to buy a second home. Um, I can virtually guarantee you I would not buy one in Oregon. It would it'd just be too much of a financial risk to do it. The tax burden would be so huge and the downside would be so enormous. Because you have one anchor city, Portland, and that's it. Right. Well, and and almost as importantly, all of the policies, particularly as they regard criminal justice, are generated out of Portland. So just because of the fact there are more voters here and the dominance of the left wing. I mean, I've been a Democrat all my life. I've been a yeah, very active Democrat. Yeah, you and I are both Democrat. Democrats. So this idea that, you know, there's you know, left-wingers or right-wingers. There really aren't very many right-wingers in Oregon, and there's not even that many Republicans in Oregon. There are some. Uh, but the fact of the matter, as you say, is that the the dominant wing of the left wing of the Democratic Party really gets to set the tone for everything. And we're seeing it. Uh, I would certainly give Governor Kotek, she's much less clueless than Governor Brown was. But she's beginning to spin it already of, well, we're... You know, we're doing so well here that, you know, we've just, for example, she did a a speaking tour of all 36 counties. Now, Clatsop County, where I live, is a relatively small place. And I'm not in office anymore, but I know a lot of people that are. I haven't spoken to anyone who had even second party contact. Now, one of the things I've always loved about Oregon is this is not a state where you have to be someone important or rich to basically have contact with elected officials. Um, it was It's small enough, you know, 4 million people, and, and it's very, very different than places like California. But what the, what the elite, the public elite in particular, do is they keep constricting the circle around themselves so that they only hear what they want in the echo chamber. And, and I, I think, though, I think they're finally the Overton window has shifted based on this polling. It's not just the polling that the police union commission based on polling in general. Most Portlanders are not in line with the loud people from Demo- the Democrats from Portland that are at the legislature. They're, they're not most Portlanders are not in line with them. They are They're Christian, in line with here, Renee here, Gonzalez. But here's the problem. Okay, we are, most Oregonians don't pay attention to this, but we have the rather bizarre system where we only have substantive legislative sessions every other year. We are about to have a, quote, regular sort short session. I believe it's limited to four weeks. I'm not sure. And I think it starts in two weeks. If there's going to be any... Um, change or revision to Measure 110, any rescue uh, of all these things we've talked about, it pretty much has to come as a result either of something that's put on the ballot by by people gathering up roughly a million dollars to put a ballot measure on, which I have not seen evidence of happening yet. And if it hasn't happened yet, it probably is not going to happen because the two times it would happen We're would working be in May on it. Or We're working the, on it. I mean, Kevin, I know Kevin Sabet is working on it. I know, um, I mean, I'm assisting him in any way that I can to work on doing that kind of fundraising. But as he pointed out, when he came on Rational Portland on this podcast, 
that the kind of money needed. I mean, Kevin thinks more like $5 million just because we're going to be outspent but, by the drug policy. But Kristen, did you know what it would take for the legislature to refer it? I know. Nothing. Zero. And that's they, why they don't thinks, even have to take a position. Yes. They can just say, there's been a great deal of controversy about measure 110. We think it would be healthy to have a new public debate. So therefore we are going to authorize in November of 2026, we're going to authorize or 2024, better yet, we're going to authorize a redo and allow people to make their best case. I mean, nothing I said just now was advocacy for or against. But here's my prediction. I don't think that will happen. Kevin and I agreed when he came on. We don't think so either. And what? Uh, and here's the part. I, I think you're going to have... Uh, Kevin Barton and uh, and perhaps Max Williams, who I think I'm trying to remember the name of their group. Um, It'll be Max Williams and Betsy Johnson, probably, who will come on. And I, I don't want to tease this because I it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Um, we've rescheduled a couple times, but we, we now have another date scheduled. And hopefully Max and Betsy can come on because they're they're focused on reform. Well, and, my, and Kevin Barton is too. You're right. And and but my understanding, and I and I think you probably have better knowledge about this than I do, is that the plan. I've heard Max on a another, another um, uh, podcast talk about it, and I tried very hard to listen to what what it was. It sounded like what he was proposing was sort of a one ten light that would recriminalize Measure One Ten, but make it what for all intents and purposes, is an auto-expungible misdemeanor. And by that I mean the the argument that I heard was um, people felt that, well, we, we're criminalizing people who are addicts. We don't want to do that. So instead of making it a possible felony, which it was before, which was the incentive which got people into drug court, we're going to make it a misdemeanor, which if you comply will automatically basically be erased off your record. That sounds okay. The problem with it is you're dealing with people in the deepest throes of addiction and you're asking them to make rational choices. And we're not talking about a, an argument, a, a debate in the public square about should I use uh, fentanyl or should I not use fentanyl? We're talking about people who are deeply addicted to one of the most dangerous drugs we've ever seen. We are not going to have a rational conversation with these people. They are, they are the subject of these ballot measures. They're not the participants in them. So I predict one of two things will happen. Either the legislature will bobble the entire special session and talk about putting together a task force or let's study this or let's take a really, really close look at this in 2025 or 2026. Or maybe they'll propose something that will go directly on the ballot what if I've they heard have the money. Is, yeah, well, what I've heard is that at best, we're probably going to get a ban on public drug use. A, a ban on public use. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I don't know. So what? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, if you. you have a ban on public you. use, then the police, assuming that they're let loose to do it, can say, sir, you're firing up that fentanyl. You really need to put it out. And, of course, the person who's doing it's brain is so fried by the use of this incredibly addictive drug that at best they might say, okay, man, I'll go do it somewhere else. Talk about shoving something off to the corner. I mean, so I'm looking at, so it's called Fix Ballot Measure 110. Right. I think that's their website. It is. And the summary of proposed changes 
says that they are going to recriminalize possession of fentanyl, meth, heroin, cocaine, and other hard drugs and make the use of controlled substances in public a misdemeanor crime. My understanding is that's what they're the focus in the legislature is going to be, and that might be the one win from this. And it also, like you said, according to this Fix and Improve Measure 110 summary, automatically expunges misdemeanor drug possession or public use convictions upon successful completion of drug treatment and probation. And so, Josh, take us through why that should not be expunged. Now, let me start. Oh, it can be expunged. I mean, it, it, what is it your makes issue it easier. Here? But, and I have to give credit. I, I know all of the people involved. I know Max. I consider Betsy Johnson one of my closest friends, and I, I consider a great politician. And Kevin Barton is the best district attorney doing business in Oregon right now. He's a good prosecutor and I a agree. good person. That being said, what what has worked, what little has worked in drug enforcement when dealing with people who are addicts are the threats of life-changing consequences. Now, people may find this hard to believe, but when you have – most people start somewhere. They don't immediately become fentanyl addicts. Uh, they may start with you know, alcohol or other drugs. But if you have essentially as the worst thing that can happen to you is a self-expunging misdemeanor, what is the incentive to stop using a drug so powerful as fentanyl? What will happen is you'll get people that maybe, maybe will be able to constrain their behavior for a very short period of time. What we had before, the part, and I'm not saying what we did before worked in the large sense, but in the small sense, drug court worked because we said, if you continue to use drugs, we're going to take away your right to, to hunt and to legally possess a firearm. And we're, although we're not going to send you to prison for, um, for using drugs, we are going to send you to prison for being a felon in possession of a firearm. Like probation violations. Yes, or, or, or again, even non-criminal disenfranchisement. How... It used to be in Oregon that you could lose your right to vote by convicted of a felony. That's gone. You used to lose your right to um, drive a car. Governor Kotek, with the wave of her arm, decriminalized tens of thousands of warrants. Now, that doesn't affect you or me, Kristen, in any way directly because it doesn't matter whether we have an outstanding warrant. We're still not going to drive 90 on the freeway. And if the cops pull us over doing 90, we are going to go to court and hang our head and try to explain why we drove 90 on the freeway. Or just pay it. And if, or just pay it. You're talking about a whole subset of the population that doesn't care if they get a ticket because they're, it doesn't care if their license is suspended. There are no yeah, well, downstream consequences That's right. to any of this. And, when, and, and it is literally magical thinking to think that if we simply call it something else because we don't want to put – and I've heard Max say this on Jeff Eager's podcast. We don't want to create – make the mistake, he said, of what we did in 2019. I don't remember any mistakes being made in 2019. I think he's talking about the reduction of, uh, of felony drug crimes to misdemeanors. You just have to put on our big boy pants and say, you know what? You make 
possession of serious drugs a felony, not because you want to send people to prison, but because you want to make the choices as hard as possible or as clear as possible for those people who, for other reasons, whether it's their chemistry or their upbringing, are unable to make them. And if you say, don't worry, we'll make this as easy on you as possible, guess what will happen? They won't make them. Now, maybe I'm wrong, Kristen. Maybe that's all it'll take. And just by extending this misdemeanor, which will go away if, they, if they're good for what? Two months, three months? Part of the problem, for example, is that methamphetamine, which is a whole separate drug problem than the fentanyl problem, is a drug that for which there is no medically assisted treatment, MAT, which is what uh, Suboxone and Methadone is for heroin and to a lesser degree for fentanyl. But it still can work. But we're talking about, you know, substance abuse is something that doesn't go away in three or six months. And, and unless all we're trying to do is blunt the numbers for a brief period of time, if we're trying to really do something that works, we're going to have to realize it's going to take more than just, you know, backing up one half a step. Now, you know, part of me feels badly about saying about these, again, these are people I respect and think a great deal of. Uh, Kevin Barton, the district attorney of, of Washington County, and Betsy Johnson, I know they mean well. But um, I, I think if you look at that poll that you talked about, the DHM poll, and if you ask Oregonians, you know, what do you want to see happen? I don't think they're going to say, well, we want to make it as painless as possible for someone in the real pit of their addiction to not to have to make very many hard choices. I'm not talking about making it hard or it's hard enough on an addict. They have a miserable life. They are making miserable choices. But just like anybody who's the sober relative of an addict, we have to help them make those right choices. And just making it easier for them will not work. But wouldn't somebody like Kevin Barton, who certainly doesn't seem to me interested in making anything easy on criminals, no. I think he'd laugh hysterically if you proposed that idea to him. He Wouldn't he say drug court is the best solution for the individuals you're speaking about? I, I would agree the drug court is. The question is, and we can see it right now, six blocks from where we're sitting, Mike Schmidt, who calls himself the district attorney and is the DA of Multnomah County, has <laughs> repurposed drug court as a way of purging Measure 11 crimes, yes. which he doesn't agree with. So the question is, no, drug court works fine. It's the devil is in the details. I mean, what are we going to have for someone who is, say, a fentanyl addict? If the answer is, if the, if the answer to the addict is, look, we're going to charge you, but don't worry. The worst that can happen to your record is a misdemeanor. In other words, don't worry about losing your license to drive. Don't worry about losing your license but to But that's hunt. just for the possession charge, right? Like, we're not talking, I mean, Kevin talks talked when he came on this podcast extensively about how if if you're engaged in serious crimes you'll get least, serious yeah. that's right in washington county now not necessarily no. here in no no and, and kevin's right and and but we're not talking about that population when we're talking about drug court drug court as a group is not i mean it, it's aimed at the probably 60 or 70 percent of felons whose primary problem is not sociopathic criminality, it's addiction. Mm -hmm. 
And through addiction, right. they may have committed other crimes. And that's why Mike Schmidt's idea to use Measure 11 crimes, very, very serious crimes, the most serious crimes, in fact, that you can commit. Right, Josh? Yes. I mean, the, me, me, and Measure 11 usually has little to do with drug use. Sometimes there's a co-occurrence. In other words, the people that engage in sexual assault of minors or uh, rob somebody with a handgun may have it, but let's be honest, they're not doing that. Somebody does not commit the sexual assault of a child because they're addicted to drugs. These are really separate pathologies and we need to treat them as separate ones. And that's what real drug court did. It recognized that, yeah, there's a population that are salvageable. They don't need necessary. One of the whole ideas of drug court was to offer the possibility of removing that stain of a criminal record. Now, for, there's some people, many of the people who we encounter as we leave this building. Yeah, you're pointing who, through the window as we sit downtown, exactly. Who, who don't care whether they have a felony. It's it's sort of what goes to the issue I was talking about, about Governor uh, Kotek uh, granting 10,000 uh, uh, pardons of, of driver's license suspensions. There's a group of people who could care less those people are not going to be reached, not by drug court, not by what I'm proposing. But wouldn't Kevin Barton say, hey, Josh, look, your your solution is a new DA in Multnomah County. That's the solution in Multnomah County. That's not really something we can legislate. Like, I guess we could. We could do a bill that says you cannot... That, that, that defines a measure 11 crime very specifically and says that you cannot divert measure 11 felons into drug court, I guess we could do something like no, that. No, actually, there's nothing to be done about what um, uh, about what Mike Schmidt's doing other nothing. than politically. Because the irony is he is the district attorney. And as long as he holds that No, that's that right. Position, He'll always find a loophole, right? Because he has discretion. It is, absolutely. Right, so and it doesn't can, matter. He you can, can do reform that. whatever you want. He can pass want. all the laws That's we right. want. And he'll find a loophole. Absolutely. To, to get so, these people so, out. Yeah. And one could say, well, we've got to work. I mean, Multnomah County is the largest county in the state. It is the most. It has the most deputy DAs, even though, um, ironically, Washington County is now outfiling uh, Multnomah County, which is kind of incredible. But you're right. I mean, one cannot get around the political realities of Mike Schmidt. Right. And so wouldn't Kevin say, okay, Josh, let's stop using Mike Schmidt's policies as an example of why reforming 110 won't work. But the, but the question then is, okay, let's ignore, because hopefully the people of, of Multnomah County will see that they've made a terrible mistake. I don't know if they will in the next election, but we can't all operate oh, based on what one district like, attorney out of 36. Wrong, we need to pass laws that make sense. And I guess I would ask Kevin or anybody else, if you could develop the best law using the existing resources, do you really think telling somebody that, um, that they have a misdemeanor which will go away if they can stay clean for three months is going to be enough of a hammer. If the answer is yes, and it will be, then fine. But it's just that my 40 years of experience and that of all the people I know, I think that's just wishful thinking. But if you have enough misdemeanors, doesn't that turn into a felony? No. 
You can have hundreds of So you're of saying that you can rack up, it's just like these tickets that the police are handing out yes. that have a hotline on them that everybody's throwing away. Exactly. Um, you're saying you can rack up a billion misdemeanors and it doesn't turn into a nope. felony. It doesn't matter. No, a felony in the Oregon and in the United States, it's a real Rubicon you cross because for someone who doesn't care, for the, for the hopeless addict or the hopeless fill-in-the-blank, they don't care. They don't care if they can't drive, legally drive a car, own a gun, write bad checks, all of that other stuff. But for the people that aspire to a some semblance of normality, to getting their driver's license back, to getting their hunting license back, that's what drug court works at. Drug court works on the theory of hopefulness, the idea that people are salvageable, that people may have fallen into a very bad place, but that with the right help and support and, frankly, negative consequences, that they can climb out of it. I'm not saying, for example, that if somebody commits you know, a felony that you say, that's it, you can never come back from this. No, that's the whole point. You say, well, you know what? If you stay clean, if you go through this program, if you do this, if you do these hard things, we will take the felony away. We will wipe it out. You can own a gun again, or you can have a driver's license again. You can be part of, quote, normal society. Now, maybe Kevin and, and Max is right. Maybe we don't have to go that far. Maybe we can just say, you know what, we'll just meet you halfway, and that ought to be enough of a hand to pull you up. What about but, the idea, Josh, that fentanyl is in the drug supply on the streets? <laughs> so we see this in Portland. It, this has become a common occurrence. I know a fair amount of parents who have narcan in their house not because they think opioids are floating around but because they're terrified of this kind of scenario happening 15 year olds and for some reason it's an abundance of 15 year olds <laughs> seem to be purchasing what they think are opioids or in general more likely adderall to stay up and study it ends up being fentanyl and they die right and so what about the argument that hey some of these people are not necessarily, now, not, not all of them are dying, right? So so maybe some of these people are not necessarily hardcore drug addicts that end up with fentanyl. Oh, I mean, the vast majority of them are not. That's right. And so should we really make this a felony? No, no, you make it a felony because, not because you're going to charge everybody with it or because you want to put them in prison, but because just as aspirationally there is redemption, well, the other side, aspirationally, there's the hole. If you're absolutely correct, the 15-year-old that thinks they're helping their friends score an Adderall and it's really a contaminated um, uh, fentanyl tablet, um, those circumstances, given the way, you don't want to tag them, uh, assuming they don't kill their friend, uh, with something for the rest of their life. You don't want to give them a scarlet letter so, so you're bad. saying trust the district attorney yes. to not charge it as that particular case you may charge case, it as but a felony. The, the way drug court has always worked is it's a question of shared responsibility the district attorney makes a charging decision and decides to put a certain group of the basket let's say in the potential of felony 
then, but you're not just leaving it up to the DA. Then you have a judge who oversees drug court who frankly can overrule the DA and can say, you know what, I don't think this person is that bad. I'm going to you know, let him into the greater basket immediately. It's a question of sharing that power. No one person in the system should ever have that, all of it. And, and frankly, if you have a DA that is acting like I'm throwing everybody in the to-be-doomed basket. Which I think is like unheard of in the state of Oregon, but sure, we but you could pretend I, that you know, you know There are one. other places where it's happened, but certainly, you know, America is the only place in the world that elects its prosecutors. And I think, and I've actually been around the world and talked to prosecutors from China and England and Italy and Russia even, and I think there's a certain genius in it because what we do is we try to marry justice and democracy. Now, other places think that's crazy, that, that essentially justice should have no part in, in the public will. But, for example, Kristen, one of, the, one of the ways we got into this jam is Measure 110. But I have to admit, I wouldn't take away the right of the public to change laws. That is a fundamental concept also of Do you marrying mean, justice. Uh, the public through like a Republican style system where we elect legislators that create laws, or you're saying you wouldn't take away the ballot initiative process? As many problems as, say, Measure 110 has created, I would not take that away. Um, wow. I Oregon, hate the Oregon is. <laughs> I, I think it's dirty. I think Kevin Sabet is right. I, I When he came on, he said he believes firmly that this ballot initiative process, even though it was meant to, I think people believe that it, it is meant to give power to the people. It is actually a dirty, dirty business that is extremely it be, expensive. It, it became a dirty business because um, it, there was so much, it's unusual for there to be such a vast um difference in 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 terms of the arguments normally on yes. ballot measures let's take ballot measure 11 which was fought out not once but twice in 94 and 2000 about mandatory sentencing our side my side that, that wanted it and the side against it were more or less evenly matched they had a little more money than we did i think there were real public discussions about that just as there were about assist doctor assisted suicide those things have been fought out not just once but in each case Kristen twice in ballot measures what was different about ballot measure 110 is that there really wasn't a conversation there was none there was uh, a out of state group the drug policy alliance with vast resources about 5 million dollars my side had about I think 200,000 bucks. We didn't even have enough money to buy a single TV ad. So frankly, now the other side would say, well, it's a free country. I can tell you I had a very hard time penetrating the editorial boards of Oregon. They weren't interested. They said, well, who are you? You're just a retired DA and this is your opinion. And I said, well, you know, there are these ads. They said, well, that, that's, that's not the editorial department. There wasn't the kind of discussion that we've had about other things. Now, you could say there are people that can say this is too important to leave to the public. And that's, as you talk about, a, a, a Repub more of a small-R Republican system. I actually believe in the idea of the marriage of democracy and justice. I think it works the vast majority of the time. I think if people pay attention, I mean, 
you, Kristen, are, you, you have a very much a public microphone, one that you've created for yourself, and you've been very forthright that your initial impression when you heard about this was not a oh, bad idea. Oh, I voted idea. for it. I voted for it. Yeah, and a lot of people did like you. Why? Because my side did a terrible job of explaining the rest of the story. And so the, the, you know, the other problem now we have, though, is that there is so much vested interest, as you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, there is so much money, a quarter of a billion dollars just in the short term by the very people who wrote the measure and then are taking the money from one pocket and transferring it to another. If we did this in any other part of the, uh, of the Oregon governmental system, I think people would be demanding a, a grand jury investigation. And that's why when Dr. Sebek came on the podcast, he talked specifically about how the ballot initiative process in Oregon has become a dirty game where outsized groups come in, mostly far left groups. So far, we've seen, at least in recent times, come in and fund these kind of ballot measures. And there is no centrist money floating around out there to combat these people. I've looked for it. No, no, you're right. I can tell you, it doesn't exist. We don't have it. And we can't raise it. Why? Because people are too busy. Well, Um, they don't see, they don't get, I mean, let's be honest. The The people get very excited and fired up about what they think is a really, really critical issue. For those of us who are centrist, it's hard to say, what is the single most important issue? I got a whole bunch of things I think are important. Generally, the ballot measure process, in my opinion, I haven't agreed with everything that's happened, but it's been mostly even-handed. The one issue about which it's not been even-handed at has been about drugs. And it's frankly goes back more than 10 years when marijuana was first legalized. Now, I've I have a, an award on my desk that's a hockey puck given to me by my colleagues in the DA's association. And most people have forgotten this. In 2014, Oregon legalized marijuana. I was the designated spokesmodel. That was against via the it. Drug Policy Alliance also. It was. And, and, and we I were outspent 20 to 1. It. Yes. Now, and I didn't see it. Kevin's, Kevin Sabet saw it. Yes. You saw it. I didn't see it. Now, I have to admit that when we're talking about dimensions, the problem that's been created by Measure 110 is is a whole different power than the problem that's created with marijuana. Are there issues with marijuana? Yes, but they don't even come close to the ones that are created by 110. But marijuana is just the first step. I mean, Kevin Sabat will say, based on the Drug Policy Alliances, the first step is is decriminalize marijuana in a state. Once you've got a foothold there, you then decriminalize, you do what you did in Oregon, you then decriminalize all drugs. Once you've done that, you then set up quote unquote harm reduction centers or safe injection sites and you allow people to start injecting drugs. Well, um, that's happened. That's happened in British Columbia and they they have an astronomical overdose problem there because all you're doing is basically sanitizing a, because the process itself is so deadly. There's no way to make um, a, a pathology like uh, the addiction to and the consequence from addiction to these very, very powerful drugs. It's, people like to make analogies. It's no different than having a few drinks. Yes, it is. That's not saying that 
alcoholism hasn't wrought terrible problems and that we should, it would be really great to have a whole different kind of conversation about alcohol. But that's just another form of whataboutism. That's just saying, well, what about alcohol? We have a current terrible, fatal crisis that not only addresses the addicts that are dying, but as you point out, and I have to say this because I'm not a parent, Kristen, I don't see it the way you articulated it, which is a good point, which is that your ordinary average teenager would have made a mistake that when I was a teenager would have meant maybe they took a stray pill that now means they may die or kill their friend. Well, and a stray pill would have been, when you were a teenager, like a what? Well, Benzedrine, or maybe a Percodan. <laughs> sure. I mean, I w- which is a very, very light, um, a, v- a very, very light medication as opposed to heroin, as opposed to, fe- certainly as opposed to fentanyl. I mean, right. heroin is child's play compared to fentanyl. It is, yeah. And, you know, it's talk- it's a whole different universe and then but then to get back to it or to the conclusion of it is what do we do about this in the legislature now kevin and uh kevin barton and max williams and my friend betsy johnson they want to do something and i think that's great and i understand um you know betsy and max have been in politics and i'm assuming and i know you'll ask these questions is well If we're going to do something, why don't we do it right? And their response will probably be, we have to be realistic. We've got a lot of people on the other side pushing back, saying we don't want to do anything. So rather than saying no loaf at all, let's get at least half a loaf. Well, and I sort of agree with them to the, here's here's the thing, I sort of agree with them to the extent that if you're talking about the Oregon legislature and the people who are in the majority in the Oregon legislature, you're not going to win Josh Marquis is not going to win the proposal he's advocating for today on this right. show. But, there, but You're there, not going to win it. But you could start there. You could start there, and you could end but up. But there is one alternative, and, and it gets are. back to something oh, that made you uncomfortable. Ahead. And that is, in Oregon, more than any other state in the United States, we have an alternative. And that is the voters. And that it, and it, it, it's expensive, but it's not that expensive. I don't it know. Kevin Sabet says bucks. like $5 million. I think it could be done for one to two. And, and frankly, we've things. raised that before. We've raised it, to, for example, for something that most people would consider as niche as banning the hunting of bear and cougar with electric dog collars. Sure, Josh, but this is real different. This is us versus the Drug Policy Alliance, and they're going to outspend us. Well, they they might, but if, if you can get a conversation going, when we passed Measure 11, we were also going up against some of those people. We were outspent. And even just look at the marijuana initiatives. It by took by them, how much? I mean, it, it, when it you did Measure 11. It took years to get there. When you did Measure 11, by how much were you outspent? Oh, at least two to five to one. Okay, I mean, but that's not, a fair not, amount. not 50 to 100 to one. Right, and see, that's, I mean, that's our issue. But, but the issue, I think, is if if the – now, we have a problem in, in that, for example, right now the, the mass media back in 1990 or 2000, the Oregonian was a vibrant newspaper. You know, there were, you know, daily newspapers up and down the state. That doesn't exist anymore. That's true. So the only uh, airspace you can get is that which you can buy, essentially. So you have to buy the space, essentially, on broadcast journalism or – directly broadcast like you're doing. But I, as someone who's been involved in politics and law enforcement my whole adult life, I think it's doable. And then the question is, maybe Max 
and Governor Wright. Maybe it's, you know, trying to row these people back um, too far from what they're trying is impossible, that it just won't work. I got to believe, just like that DHM poll, that Oregonians are smarter than that. I think it's oh, a I question of are. framing it for them and saying, okay, if we don't, if we just do this minor misdemeanor thing, is that going to be enough? And again, refer to things people know, because most people know an addict, okay? You know someone who's fallen into addiction. If we tell them, okay, um, you know, we're going to take your driver's license away, is that going to be enough to do it? There are people for whom that is enough, but there's a, a you know, again, the, the, the canyon gets narrower and narrower the deeper it goes. But ironically, it's those people in the deepest part of the canyon that are the biggest problem and that need the help the most and are affecting the rest of society more. Because it's only someone who doesn't care about anything that's basically lying over your car hood, you know, going to the bathroom in downtown Portland and smashing the window out, not caring whether they get arrested or not. But the problem is that, of course, there are many other things, as you pointed out, you know, about Mike Schmidt. The district attorney and the in this county makes a huge difference. If the DA refuses to enforce the law, I can pass all the laws in the world. It won't mean a darn thing. Um, yeah, and- that's right. And so I don't understand. I mean, we, I think we have to throw Mike Schmidt and Multnomah County out of the equation because otherwise we're dealing with a, a factor here that is going to run around the chessboard no matter what we try to do. Except let's 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 say that Kevin's proposal and Max's proposal goes forward and it's the misdemeanor and the idea it's you know may not be a whole loaf but it's half of one. If Mike Schmidt is still in power and still believes or or argues that that's all that's needed, that won't even happen because that's that's what's already happened. I mean, he's already basically gutted what little there was. The only response to that is a new district attorney. Now, there's going right. to be an opportunity for that. And I've seen the polling, you know, other places were not, Oregon's not unique in this regard. San Francisco, arguably the most liberal jurisdiction in the United States, recalled their district attorney, a guy named Chesa Boudin, yes. about a year and a half ago. And in Los Angeles, the largest DA's office in the world with a thousand deputy DA's, a man named George Gascon, who was a former police officer, has really destroyed that office. There are nine candidates running against him. At the moment, he's polling at 14%. So, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, these are all sort of like standing on the on the coast and watching the waves come in and out. Can we affect those waves? No. Can we decide when the wave is going to crest and where we're going to put our boat in the water? Yes. And and I don't want to raid on the parade of Kevin and Max and those other people who are willing to do something. They get credit for that. The question is, if we have this key moment, if we have this ability to act, are we basically holding back too far and too late because we're, I don't think we're going to get two or three shots at this. I think we have the voters concerned, upset, and I think we need to take that opportunity now. And I say now, I mean in the next year. So you would propose, tell us what you're proposing here. My proposal would be that we reinstitute drug court and give the 
opportunity for district attorneys and judges to enforce the law as it exists, to say, if someone is caught with uh, heroin or methamphetamine or fentanyl, that you have the ability to charge them with a felony. But you, have, but you also have the ability, um, at, or even manufacture it in, that they can enter into drug court. And if they comply with whatever the judge says is adequate. Now, I have no illusion that the person is going to succeed their first time. I'm not talking about somebody going into drug court and only succeeding if they stay clean from the word get-go. Failure is part of recovery. I know that. But if you don't, but so my proposal is you give the judge and the district attorney the authority to, to, to say, if you screw up, we are going to treat it as if it was a felony. Just like in 1988, you're not going to go to prison for it, but you could lose your driver's license. You could lose your hunting license. You might even do a couple weeks in jail. And I think that's going to be enough. When you ask most of the citizens to say, that's all? That's all you really want? Yep, that's all it needs to be. It I, just needs to be that far. I agree. I just I think what concerns people is the idea that what I think in general Oregonians also believe drug addiction is a medical issue, is can be prosecuted as a felony even if it is not actually in the real world when it comes to a case-by-case basis. I think they just don't like the idea. It may be difficult in Oregon to tie the word felony to drugs. Well, we, we did for, for a long time, and in, I wouldn't say it worked great, yeah, but, but now it worked it's a in lot all the better drugs. than it does now. But, Josh, now it's in all the drugs. Now it's in all the drugs. Now I cannot select marijuana as the street drug to purchase – I, well, I'm going right. to end you, up with the, fentanyl. The, the risk now, and that, that's the reality of the new felony. world. I'm going to get a felony. And so, but here's the flip side to that. As a parent, what do we say to the parents who say, we say, look, we know these people, these 17-year-old kids, they're not trying to do evil, but they picked up some pills which, when they looked them up on the Internet, said they were Oxycontin. They were gray blue, and they had a right. thirty car or an eighty carved into them in a circle. So that's what they thought they were doing, and they thought this girl was really cute. She was only fifteen, so they gave her four of them, and she took them and she died. Now I can tell you that whether it was, frankly, nineteen eighty-five, two thousand and fifteen, or probably today, that's manslaughter, and it should be. It won't really make any difference because then the issue, legal issue, is what is the degree of recklessness? But most of the cases, fortunately, don't involve, you know, a teenage girl dying. There's the risk of that happening. So the question is, where do you titrate the criminal law? Where do you create the disincentive for people who are making those decisions? And I'm including teenagers making the decisions. It's one thing to say, eh, you know, I'll have a beer and get in a car. The, what's the risk of that? But you're right. The world has changed. And the risk now of handing over a handful of pills, which you don't know what it is, is death. And therefore, at, I think the system has to be able to at least bend sufficiently to treat it seriously. If we, if we cap it and say, you know, things have changed so much that we're just going to say the worst that can happen is the equivalent of a littering citation. Seriously, that's what a misdemeanor is. Be sure. Like unlawful littering. 
Um, I think I think what you've done then is you've handcuffed law enforcement, you've handcuffed the courts, um, and and I don't think it will have the effect we want it to. Now I realize that I'm sort of raining on a parade here. I mean, the the the, the fact that Max and Betsy and Kevin are proposing ideas are creditable. Thank goodness someone's stepping forward and doing it. I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, I know there's no percentage in saying, well, I had a better idea, and it was years ago. That doesn't matter. The question is, we are where, as you say, and I hadn't really thought about it that way, things have changed dramatic, dramatically in terms of the drug market. Um, there is no drug market. It's just all fentanyl is what PPB will tell, Portland Police well, Bureau the, will tell the you. the risk is there that it might Oh, the risk is, is not just there. The risk is so high that the... Um, realistic education, the, the education everyone needs to be giving their peers, their friends, their colleagues, their children, everybody in their life is, don't you dare buy anything off the streets, particularly on the West Coast, it, just assume it all has fentanyl in it. Let me let me give you a completely different Including example. marijuana. Yeah, because, it, well, and there was a time I remember when marijuana was often saturated with PCP or other sure. hallucinogenics where people could have a very bad I don't bad know about trip. often. Often? Is that true? Well, there was a, a period at least in Eugene. I mean, maybe in, in Berkeley in Eugene, or something. I think. Okay, or Eugene, sure. But it depends right. on how much you trusted your dealer. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But, you know. And again, we can't do that anymore. Well, and, and, part, and but, but part of what you're saying there here, Kristen, is the reality and the world has changed. And the question then is also... At what you know? Again, when I was in high school or I was in college, the idea that somebody might have some spare pills that might be what they would call cross tops back in the day, which meant amphetamines, or maybe uh, something that was easily recognizable as a narcotic, like a, a Percocet pill or even a Tylenol number three, which has codeine in it, and you could probably ninety percent be sure that that's what it was. That reality, as you say, is totally changed. Yes. So the other part of this that I think from a societal standpoint we have to look at is when we know that um, a bootleg pill is as or more likely to be fentanyl and as likely to be deadly, don't we actually, from a policy standpoint, have to start saying, look, this is Utterly unacceptable conduct. I don't think we're at the point where we all know that yet, or else 15-year-olds wouldn't be dropping dead. I don't think so. I don't think, I think, but I what, don't know so that we're there yet. So what should the criminal penalty, if any, be for accidentally poisoning someone to death? I think that's a different issue. That's not about possession. That's about dealing. Well, no, poisoning mo- most someone. of them, I mean, having dealt with more than I, more deaths than I want to, most of them, of the deaths like this aren't dealing. They are social situations where kids are at a party. Well, then they're not poisoning them. They probably believe it is Adderall. Well, the one I'm thinking of, this actually happened. It it stays with me. It was about 2015, and an adult couple came to my office as district attorney, and their daughter had died of a um, methadone reaction. And what had happened is she had, had been at a party, and somebody had handed her a spiked drink, that it had been spiked with methadone. And we got to the point where we were able to figure out which pharmacy the liquid methadone came from, but we weren't able to find out more from there. And nobody, everybody at the party froze up. But the facts that I figure, was able to figure out is someone at the party, probably wanting to get her drunk, gave her a concoction, which 
they, I'm sure they didn't want to kill her, but had the risk of killing her and did. And then that's what we I do in the criminal law. We try to decide what is the level of criminality, if any, that we're going to assign but to But see, something. Josh, I just think that's tricky. I think alcohol has the risk of killing her, too. We hear all the time about students binge drinking and dying. Yeah, but... But if some, but, and, and but we, the person and, who introduces a foreign substance into it... That's a frat party. That's guys handing you drinks all night. But, but, if, they, but if, that, if I can prove, as the prosecutor or a cop, that this, this person introduced methadone or God knows something even worse into it, and the consequence is fatal, shouldn't the consequences for that person be greater? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about parties where people are handed drink after drink of alcohol, and sometimes they die. I mean, do we say then that handing people alcohol should lead to murder charges? Generally not, because it's, it, can, it has to do with what is the... I mean, there are people, there are young people who will die from alcohol overdose. I've had those cases. And then the question is, you know, I think you have to make from a societal standpoint is... Was the risk in which the person who introduced the alcohol or whatever the substance of, were they acting just with regular disregard or extreme disregard? See, and I don't know that I'd say that. I don't know that I'd say that somebody who gives a kid a pill at a party, a kid who gives another kid a pill or even methadone at a party knows that they're acting with extreme disregard. I mean, methadone is used as an opioid substitute for medically assisted treatment. It it's is. given to people as a but medicine. But the idea is that the person taking it should have a right, at least, even if it's a seven, 16-year-old girl who thinks... Of course. But know. does a teenager know that? Probably well, not. We could take, we could take um, fentanyl out of the... I mean, magically take out of it. These same kind of questions were before the legal system, before fentanyl came sure. along. And the question was... At what level, you know, is it just kids screwing around? At what level is it somebody just adding something? At what level is it? And, and that those. And are I think all. what we're seeing play out is that we're still seeing kids screwing around, and there's just not enough education trickling down to these children. Right, but the problem, the real problem, is not kids screwing around. That's it's right. It's the cartels that exactly are deliberately right. punching out fake. Um, oxycodone yep. tablets by the millions right. and introducing them into the and market. And isn't that a federal issue? Isn't that... It that is, is a federal, not, but just to it, give you an idea... Isn't that a federal and international issue? That is not an Oregon issue. It, That's not going to be solved with a ballot measure, right? I'm just trying no, to steal no, it is. I don't necessarily disagree with you. I'm just trying to think of counter Here's why it is an Oregon issue, is that... Um, although it looks very impressive when you see uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration rush in with their you know, jackets on, et cetera, there are maybe a couple dozen DEA agents in all of the state of Oregon. There are hundreds and hundreds of police officers. Everything in law enforcement is like the kid on the beach who walks along on the, at the result of a high tide and one kid reaches down and the starfish have washed up above the high tide mark and the kid takes the starfish and throws it in and the other kid says, why are you bothering? There are thousands of starfish. And the kid says, it matters to that one. And that's really what a, law, a lot of law enforcement is. You are not going to get all of them. You are not going to get all of the bad guys. You're not going to get all of the drug dealers. Now, you have to develop a policy that doesn't overreact and say, well, if someone makes a mistake and, and a bad result, we're going to bring the full fate of, of the justice system. We're going to prosecute you for murder. 
That's crazy. You don't do that. But we're at the other edge of that system now where we're, we're saying, well, because the risk is, is great that nobody knew what they were doing, we're just going to basically, it's like taking these things and dialing them all down to zero. What will happen is no one will hear us, Kristen. There will be no sound. That's an interesting point, which is, hey, if we change the law to make all of this, make, make anything with fentanyl in it a felony, anything, then, wow, we're going to make headlines all over the place. And all of a sudden, everybody knows that everything floating around has potential felony consequences. Yes. And, and every the, conversation with your child begins with, guess what? Your not life only could will change you die, not only will you, yeah, Not only will you die, but you could go to prison and you could be a freaking felon. And then the question, and then the question, which is automatically imputed by this is, are That's the people enforcing these laws, meaning the drug cops and the prosecutors and ultimately the judges, using good judgment? And the answer is you, you want them to, to be doing that. You, you have to account for the situation you talked about, the, the kid who just is trying to impress the girl and hands her a pill thinking, really honestly thinking, it's just a Perkinan. But then you, but you have to also encompass the possibility that that kid is, you know, starting up his drug business by buying a couple thousand bogus fentanyl tablets and selling them to his friends because they trust him. And I can that, I can hear a Portlander say, and I think even even a Portlander for which they believe that drugs should be recriminalized, which is the overwhelming majority, and actually the majority. Be- agrees with you is my understanding based on the poll the majority thinks 110 should just be repealed they don't want to reform it they want to get rid of it well i don't think it should be reformed the, the because majority of, of i think it's a fundamentally corrupt law I, think, I i agree with you i think the foundation is rotten on the other hand i can also hear a question being worded by dhm the polling agency the polling company um asking oregonians if they want to make drug possession a felony. And I can hear most Oregonians saying, absolutely not. Well, but the question is, you have to define what does that mean? For example, most people think a felony means you're going to prison, your life will never be the same again, and there there are no basically off-ramps. Now, we did use drug court for 20, 30 years in this state relatively effectively before we had this problem with fentanyl. Yeah, Obama we, funded drug courts because they were Sure, and they existed before then even. Yes, they were. Of course they did. They can work with good people both in the DA's office, judges, public defenders, probation officers who are working to get people well, not necessarily working to But I but I think what they'd say Josh is I don't like the idea that we're putting in the district attorney's hands they, the district that's a lot of trust in the district attorney we to get to did. decide whether the 15 year old who gave well, a well, pill well, to somebody else the legislature else. has made that decision already if they're under 18 they're not going to be treated as an adult i don't agree with it but that ship has sailed so we're talking about 18 plus and, yeah, I think and we, but yes you, there you, would have to be a fair amount of education around that but sure well, I mean, I don't agree with that decision, but that was made know, in 2019 no, when Senate Bill 2008 was passed. But that's a good counter argument to what I think well, the fear the, of a lot of Oregonians. But would you, be. you make a point that I think goes to the very core, and that is, well, you know, do we really want to trust district attorneys or or judges to make these decisions? The answer is, 
you better trust somebody because if you the only alternative is to say you know what we're just going to let it be ollie ollie oxen free and hope that everybody acts in, including drug dealers act in good faith because the problem is now there's no way for the system to distinguish between the teenager who just you know wants to help out a friend who wants to get high and the and the person who's part of and the, the teenager could be 18 you know could be a high school senior 18 year old yeah. And right now and we're back it, into the discussion. I, I don't think that's right. I don't Question. think a 17 year old should be able to run a drug ring and be treated as a child. But that is the law in Oregon now. And I don't think that's going to change. The question I think that we have to ask is, you know, what do what what tools do we want to put in the hands of those people who are acting in good faith. I don't think Mike Schmidt is acting in good faith. But in those places, I think Kevin Barton is. I think Kevin Barton is acting the way a district attorney should. But He's, but again, I mean, doesn't that belie what you were just, just saying, which is not all DAs are the same. Not all DAs not. are trustworthy. No, the, and what happens is that, again, talking about... Um, marrying democracy and justice. One of the reasons that we do elect DAs is there's different kinds of attitudes. I can guarantee you, for example, that Coos Bay is different than Washington County, Certainly. which in turn is different than Lane County. And as long as it's within the, the, the one thing I would say is, I mean, having worked in it for 40 years in Oregon, the DAs in Oregon are very different with one major exception. You've got Mike Schmidt in Portland, who is an anti-DA, who's really trying to do everything he can to unprosecute people, to not enforce the law. He's taken, for example, what was once drug court and turned it as an escape hatch for Measure 11. Now, yes. there's no fix to that, ironically, except a political one. That's right. And the political one is electing somebody else's district attorney. But that's a separate issue, I think, from the aspirational law about what do we do about Measure 110. If people think it's fixable, if they think we can make a silk purse out of the sow's ear, then, then maybe there is a fix to it. I don't think it is. I think this is something that needs to be started from scratch. What, what about this argument? None of this matters, okay, because... Kevin Barton and Max Williams and Betsy Johnson aren't going to get what they want out of the legislature anyway. The most they're oh. going to get is a <laughs> is is a ban on public drug use. Well, I think that would be an easy thing to get because it's really asking very little. And yes, that's, that's, that's right. why I'm making. That's but why I agree. I think that's the most they're going to get out of this. Then that's a Pyrrhic victory because a yes, I, I because I then think they the people, would agree with that. Then the people who don't want changes in the laws, so see. We made it illegal for there to be public drug use. What more can you ask? Yeah. And kids will keep dying. Yeah, but I, I, I ultimately think in that respect, Kevin Barton, Max Williams, and Betsy Johnson, who were part of the F Fix 110 movement, I think they would agree with you. I think they would say that's, no, we want them to go much further than that. I think if you injected if Kevin Barton with true serum, he would say, we're not going to get what we want. Well, you often, you know, I, I've been in politics a long time, and I've been in politics and law enforcement even longer. And often you don't, you, you get a, you know, you get half of what you want or a third of what you want. Here's what I will say, though, Josh, like, I agree with you. Um, and, and I think why not? I think most Oregonians agree, like, let's repeal it. I think it's built on a rotten foundation because it was created by the Drug Policy Alliance. 
And so I, I just don't, I dislike it altogether. I don't want to, I don't want to reform it. On the other hand, on the other hand, here's what I will say as a Portlander, as somebody who's stuck here um, with two little kids, I, I like the idea of a ban on public drug use. I got to tell you, I like it. I don't dislike it. No, no, I don't. I'm happy with it. It's a, it's a, it's a perfectly good idea and standing by itself, it's great. And I'll take it. But politically, I can almost guarantee you that the conversation politically will stop for a minimum of three to five years. And three to five years. Do you really think so? Oh yeah. But I don't think it'll stop because the tents on the street aren't going to stop. Well. I actually don't think it will stop. One of the things that has driven the conversation thus far, and this is something I probably couldn't have said when I was still in elective office, is who's dying. And and that was that uh, up to a certain point, um, only people who sort of existed in sort of a subclass economically, um, socially, were even really at risk. Um, People, for example, who came from backgrounds like me, if they had a drug problem, they'd go into drug treatment. They probably wouldn't even get arrested in many places. They'd, they'd go to a, you know Camp Wilderness in Utah for 30,000 bucks. What's changed and what's scaring the heck out of people and should is, as you pointed out, this is now sifting down to almost all levels. There's almost no common sense way to avoid it other than telling kids, don't ever take that's right. a drug that's offered. And I don't know if kids will ever do that. So then the question is, since we can't count on kids to do it, we need to shut, in my view, the spigot off at the real source as hard as possible because we can't count on kids to do that. So we have to basically say to those that are doing this for a business, we are going to make this so unpleasant for you, such a bad business decision, such a life-changing personal one, that you will find some other illegal way to make money because this one won't be worth it, at least not in Oregon, maybe some other place. And at this point, that's all we can do. What, what about the idea that we're not going to be able to raise the kind of Kevin Sabet's argument is we have to start at the legislature. And I agree with him. I think you do start, you start at the, the path of least resistance, right? You, not that the legislature is that, but it's the least. It would be expensive. the cheapest and easiest thing to do. Yes. Yeah. And so we need to start there because we just don't have the money for the ballot initiative yet. I think we could raise it. But, I, but we don't have it yet, and I think it will be difficult to raise it. But right now, when we're talking realistically, yes, the time frame that we have, which is the short session, right. and with the, Democ- the left wing of the Democratic Party in control, being, yes. who, having the investment, let's just think of the LaMotta uh, controversy. I really doubt Yeah, that's that, a controversy that was written about and broken by Sophie Peel of right. Willamette Showing League. basically outright corruption by the Secretary of State, accepting tens of thousands of dollars from, albeit semi-legitimate drug dealers, selling marijuana. Some of it legally, some of it illegally. But if, if we're going to hope, you know, obviously the past of lethal resistance is the legislature. I just don't. I think they've got too many reasons to say no, and it's too easy because there's no direct consequences. I don't see voters recalling, say, even five legislators from the worst, from the areas where the problem is the worst in Oregon saying, this is, I wish this would happen, saying, 
you know, we gave you the opportunity in February of 2024. We, we begged you to, you know, just give us the opportunity to pass a law that made some sense. But I don't, I think the calculation on the part of those people is we don't have to do that. We can get away with a task force. We can get away with a, a sober, long, cold look at it. We'll kick it down the road to the next election or the time when they get them. Because the consequences to me, meaning the, the legislator, is going to be non-existent. It's going to be spread around 90 legislators, and they're not going to come for me. And if I'm Governor Kotek, people may be upset about it, but not upset about it enough that it's going to come on my doorstep before I'm up for re-election in the year 2026. So the question is, how immediate a political problem is it, and what will the solution be? Under other circumstances, it might be more immediate. Um, and, and that's part of my concern, Chris, is, that, is that, that a ballot measure that just says public use of drugs is illegal might be just enough to get everybody, you know, chilled out enough without really doing anything and without changing any of the distribution patterns of drugs. Um, and frankly, probably not changing the fatality level at all, which is ultimately the real test. But that's a terrible, terrible test because then you have to wait two years and say, are as many people dying? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's really, I think it's tricky because if you start with the legislature and you start with the least expensive option, you have to know you will not win repeal. You have to know you won't win that. Well, there, there is another way to do And this is what my belief is, is it just ought to be, look, legislators, we, we know you sold your soul to LaMotta and those people. I, I know you can't, they won't actually say this, but we're not asking you to take a position. Just put it on the ballot. It costs nothing. I'm sorry, that's not exactly true. It costs whatever it does to add a line to either the March or more likely the November um, 2024 ballot. That would be literally the easiest thing. And then you just say, you know what? And, and I'm well aware that the other side, that the DPA has millions of dollars and will probably bring it to bear again. I just know the difference will be this time everybody will be watching them and there will be a different kind of conversation because there was none yeah. in 2020. I'm going to link to that Emerson poll that Kevin Sabet talked about when he came on because I just think it's important that everybody see it is a small margin. I think it's 55 versus 40 something, but the, but the majority of Oregonians do want full repeal. And so it's not hard to argue to legislators, look, this is popular. You can get behind this and it, repealing if, if you can get behind repealing 110 you're going to be in the corner of most oregonians that's true but i think that they owe other people or they can perceive whether it's politically or otherwise yes. so frank you know i as agree you, with you so what is going on with that and how you know what people are going to barrage me with emails about and what i'd like to ask you about before i start getting ten thousand emails a day is how do we fix the legislature, which seems to be completely behind the eight ball of where most Oregonians are? Well, they have to be held accountable on specific issues. Having run for office seven times myself, it's very easy to be very vague about what you're going to do. And also, frankly, legislators run on a huge number of issues, everything from the economy to education 
crime, I can tell you, because it was always my thing, was if you asked what is the most important thing government does, crime was in the one or spot one or two. But depending on how endangered somebody was, and you ask them right now, where is it? It often, it could be anywhere between number one and number 40. Because ironically, the more successful the criminal justice system was, the more the number gets driven down because people don't feel it immediately. They don't feel like their kids are in danger. Now, right now... Well, I think most Portlanders think their kids are in danger. I think Portlanders, right. I think that tide has shifted. I would... It, it reminds me of 1992, 1994, when Measure 11 passed. Talk about that. Well, it, what had happened in the 1980s was that uh, a whole series of programs had gotten into effect, including sentencing guidelines that had meant less and less certainty of people going to prison, even for murder, even for rape. And when they did go to prison, um, they off. I mean, the average the average sent time spent on a life sentence was eight years. I don't mean occasionally. I mean, if someone was sentenced to life for murder, they spent on average eight years in prison. If they were sentenced uh, to, for rape, I'm not talking about you know, groping somebody. I'm talking about the violent sexual rape of say a 14 year old girl by a 40 year old man. The average time they did was between six months and two years. People were outraged when it was presented to them like that. And they made the choice to go with Measure 11. It was hotly contested. It was probably the most, the toughest uh, political fight I've been involved with. It also happened to coincide with my first run for election. And it didn't stop uh, percolating, even though it passed by 62% of the vote in 1994. The, uh, the dark side, the other side, the same people that support the Drug Policy Alliance, they hated it. They brought it back six years later as Measure 94. And except this time, voters said by 74% that they wanted Measure 11. Now, if you're hearing echoes of some of the same polling numbers, it's because they're there. Now, um, so I think that the supporters of, of Measure 110, the last thing they want is a, is a, is a vote. They will do anything to avoid that. Because as you say, the numbers show on outright appeal, about 55% in terms of getting rid of it, even in the short term, it's 64%. Now, generally speaking, from speaking as an old politician, if you've got 52, 53 to 47, that's pretty solid. 55, 45, that's going home money. I mean, that's... Um, now, you know, there's a lot of not sure things. A lot of other things could happen. There could be war in the Middle East. Uh, the Russians could, you know, further invade uh, uh, Ukraine. Um, a lot of other things can happen. But as you pointed out, for a lot of people, this is personal in a very real way. Maybe not their family, but someone they know, uh, a relative of theirs. And, and of course, these events, when they happen, they're life-altering. They aren't just a question of, well, Susie's, you know, uh, boyfriend got in trouble and spent a couple of weekends in jail because he got DUII. No, people are dying. They died. You know, there was a funeral for a 17-year-old kid. And most of the time, there's not 
overt criminality. Most of the time, as you point out, it's the stupidity of, oh, here are some pills that I stole from my mom, and I think they're Percodan, or they look like it. I mean, I can tell you that 20 years ago, there was no, just 20 years ago, there was nowhere near the sophistication by the cartels to mask um, drugs as pseudo-pharmaceuticals. I mean, they might you know, look like a pill. Well, they didn't have the assistance of China either. No. Although that's the raw, the, the raw material comes from China and then it comes over in bulk and then it's turned into the pills. But as you point out, pointed out, that's pretty big um, as opposed to, you know, having to grow a field full of poppies or something. No, it's, it, it, I mean, it's it, huge. It changes, you know, it part of the problem yeah. is those of us in law enforcement have to think about it in a totally different way. We cannot use 1990 law enforcement techniques against this. It just won't work. I mean, and frankly, everybody, you know, most, we get lazy and it's easy to say, oh, we'll just, you know, put together a task force and do that. Well, we can't. And we can't treat everybody the same. As you say, you don't treat uh, a 17-year-old that's just trying to, you know, uh, score with a 16-year-old girl by giving her a pill he thinks she wants with someone who is actually a mini-dealer who knows at least at some level that what they're doing is, they may not know exactly what they're pushing, but they know it's not real. They know it's probably fentanyl. I want to come back to this question of the legislature, though. I mean, the reason that a lot of people are starting there is because it's easy. Yeah. And I think a big question is, how do we get the legislature in line with where most Oregonians are. And I know that you, that your answer was, well, hey, you know, they're looking at, they're not looking at most Oregonians, they're looking at other people that are doing them favors or lining their pockets or et cetera. But how do we change that makeup of the legislature so it's more in line with the majority? Well, I can do only look at Do we pay them the- more? Do we, what is it? I mean, people say pay more. People say make it year round. People say- Well, we've really, we've done some of that. I mean, we, we've- we're not going to have a full-time legislature. It would To do it really would be quite expensive and not something Oregon wants to do for a whole bunch of reasons. I think this, the simple answer is somebody in politics is you've got to just push this issue to the point where it's something that they really care about and not just on a let's have one day to talk about the problem with fentanyl issue. And that is, and, and I've seen that. I saw it happen with drunk driving in the late 70s, early 80s. I saw it happen with violent crime in the early 1990s. Um, and it can happen again. Frankly, this could be so much more focused. Well, it might be this, though, because according to everybody that I've talked to, the testimony of the legislature has been overwhelmingly against Measure 110, and it's been families well, who've lost children, etc. That's very interesting because I had the opportunity to watch it. They did, the legislature did everything they could to choke off negative testimony. They gave a that. woman who went to federal prison for killing a customer of hers. She was a heroin dealer. She didn't do it deliberately, but she, there's a, a drug called the Len Bias Law, right. named after a famous basketball player who was killed by a, a, what he thought was an, uh, a cocaine overdose. And as a result, the federal government uses targeted prosecutions, and in this case, a 
this young woman named Morgan Godvin. She's well-known. She talks about it, and she's in recovery. But she did, I think, two or three years uh, for a Len Bias homicide. Not that she intended to kill this guy, but it was a, a, a man who was either a friend slash customer of hers. She thought she was dealing heroin. It, I don't think it was fentanyl. This is back in the 80s or 90s. She was the star witness, and she was the lead person. And almost, I watched four or five hours of it. Kevin Barton was given less than three minutes, two hours in. Um, several other people who signed up were not even given the opportunity. So yes, it was very instructive what happened. They, they slated a day for it. They loaded the, it's called by invitation only. It's very interesting. I've gotten used to this when you look at the agenda. Because you think, oh, it's the Oregon legislature. No, this is important. This is good civic education. So we, what we should look for is invited testimony. Absolutely. When you look at the agenda, which you can go to either in the past or coming forward, you look for the, the, the committee, and then you look and see what it says. Now, normally, having been going, going there for literally 42 years, the vast majority of legislative hearings are open to the public. Now, they... They give, generally, they give preference to other legislators and actually people who've traveled more than 100 miles one way. And in fairness, they generally try to balance, you indicate whether you're testifying for or against it, and they try to generally balance it out. Generally, I've testified hundreds of times in front of the legislature. This was different. This was by invitation only. This was deciding who was going to testify, for how long. Most of the testimony was looked to be very sort of white bread. There were charts, graphs, and I recognized some of the people, but what they were doing was a lot of misdirection. They wanted to talk about everything except, you know, the the elephant in the room, which was that people were, kids in particular, were dying, and a lot of them were dying, and Measure 110 was nothing like what it claimed to be. And they didn't want to talk about that, and frankly, the, the few Republicans, I, I'm a Democrat, I don't, I'd, I'd rather not think this was a, a political issue, but when you, you have to remember also that this happened in the immediate shadow of the LaMotta scandal. And just for reference, as you said, that was, in, you know, real what they call enterprise reporting done by Willamette Week about the fact that the then Secretary of State, Shemaya Fagan, was not only taking literally bags of money, which is legal in Oregon, as long as it doesn't exceed $10,000, she was actually a secret employee at a rate higher than that that she was being paid by the legislature of the, the marijuana company. And frankly, there's a federal grand jury going on right now. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see her eventually indicted. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is that was happening at almost the same time. Now, the marijuana issue has no direct relationship to 110, but I can assure well, you— Well, it has a direct relationship in the, in the sense that decriminalizing marijuana was done by the Drug Policy Alliance as a door opener for decriminalizing all drugs. But It's part of their playbook. It, it is. But In my opinion. I, I agree, but they would claim that these things are utterly unrelated to each other. The one thing I think is important in discussing this is 
in the real world, this stuff all happened within the time frame of just a couple months of each other. And, and there were people desperately fighting to st save their political advice. For example, I mean, let's take our current governor, um, who is, frankly, a very accomplished politician. I don't like her, but I will give her that. She's smart. She managed to cut herself out of the whole scandal involving LaMotta, even though she had been pictured, and Willamette Week has pictures of her paying pickleball with the people that run it. Now let's remember and another. Lamada is a is a marijuana business a, that well, had dispensaries throughout the Oregon. state of Oregon. Right, owned by a couple um, who are millions of dollars behind in both their uh, IRS uh, obligations and in, in money that they owe the state of Oregon for licensing fees. And now that they're opening uh, dispensaries in in New Mexico, which is also just, and and they were. Now, at the same time, just to make it, Jeff Eager, who, run, who has this much more partisan political podcast he runs, more I was on it recently, Oregon Roundup. Right. He's talked a lot about an old personal friend of mine, Senator uh, Ron Wyden, who accepted a half a million dollars from this guy who was just convicted in federal court of running a cryptocurrency scam. Oregon took the largest, the Oregon Democratic Party took the largest single sum in the entire country. Now, it has no direct relationship to the LaMotta business, and in turn, it has no direct relationship to the whole fentanyl issue. But this is politically, this is all happening at the same time. It's all putting pressure on the same people, and those people are also trying to let the pressure out. Now, I don't think... Let me be fair about this. I don't think Ron Wyden has anything to do with fentanyl or anything sure. else like that. But he has political pressures on him that are enormous right now to divert things just as um, I also don't think the governor has anything to do with the directly to do with the fentanyl crisis. But she was a big supporter of Measure 110. The LaMotta people were supporters of 110. The dr and then who's at the center of all of this? The Drug Policy Alliance, which basically has been able to turn Oregon into its own little laboratory for the last 20 years. Yeah, we're the great guinea pig of the country. Sure. Well, we're see, think about it. We're just the right side state. We're not too small. We're not Rhode Island or Wyoming with, you know, 800,000 people. We're not Hicksville that people make fun of like West Virginia or, you know, some really... North Dakota, some state nobody's ever heard of and never wants to go to. But we're not too big. We're not, you know, California or New York or some state where, you know, people pay real money. We were just the right size. And DPA was very, very successful in at least renting politicians here. And there's been very, very little. The only person who's really paid a price for it thus far has been Shumia Fagan. Uh, is, uh, is Sheila, the, or the former Secretary of State. Shumia Fagan, yes. Yeah, Shumia Fagan. I, I think it's pronounced Shumia, but... It probably is. But I think that... here Here's the issue. Like, for instance, I just think politics are so... Uh, our statewide politics are lagging so far behind Oregonians. Tina Kotek is the least popular governor in the United States. Who was the least popular governor in the United States? Kate Brown. There you go. <laughs> How does this keep happening? 
to us in Orange. Because there's a there's a disconnect, and, and yes, one of, there is. And one reason there is is because of the press, and it's one of the reasons media like yours, Kristen, has become so important so fast. Because I just 20 years ago, the Oregonians' involvement in this would have they would have had investigative reporters on it. And OPB, I worked for OPB in the 1970s as a news reporter. OPB has become basically a house organ of the Oregon Democratic Party. They're, I mean, the stories they do about, about LaMotta and marijuana are a joke. So normally in, in, a, in Oregon, and in the Oregon that I remember, we counted on the free press to be the check and balance on an overly confident and powerful political system. Well, that's not working for a variety of reasons. I mean, the, most people don't think about the Medford newspaper. It wasn't a huge newspaper, but it was a fairly successful daily. It won a couple Pulitzer Prizes. It's out of existence. It isn't just, you know, in Chapter 11 reorganization, there's no newspaper there. The Eugene Register Guard wants a really good newspaper. It's a joke now. The Salem Statesman Journal also wants a good newspaper. Is literally done remotely out of a newsroom in the Midwest. And the Oregonian, which claim, which I think I told you about this last time I was here, maybe if I didn't, I had lunch with a former investigative reporter who was reminding me that they now have a staff of 45 down from 450. The difference is that the Oregonian still, they're sort of like, they think they're, they're still in the big people's leagues. They still write editorials as if they really matter. The editorial board of the Oregonian used to be 12 people. There was an editorial editor. There were four columnists. There was an entire section of that floor of the Oregonian building. There is now one person. Her name is Helen Young. She writes the editorials, period. That's it. I mean, but on, and they just announced that they were going to only print three times a week. I'm assuming what comes next is maybe printing once a week, then maybe not having an edition at all. But they still think, you know, they're playing in the big people's court, but one of the ways they do that is by appeasing the power structure of Portland and Oregon, and that's not rowing backwards. Now, even they finally had enough with Measure 110. As you probably know, the Oregonian finally, about two months ago, finally wrote an editorial, a big front page Sunday editorial, which is all unusual. And teachers unions. Like it's yeah. amazing the way the Oregonian has realized the way the majority <laughs> of its readers, I think, are leaning. Well, it you know, it's because their, their readership is shrunk to literally a fraction. And again, I take no joy in this. I really enjoy. I don't either. We need a state, a, a, good, a good state newspaper, newspaper that yes. on a Sunday, my wife and I could, you know, separate it out and spend two hours reading the Oregonian. That was wonderful. Again, you know, there are people that think that maybe some of us take some sort of schadenfreude or joy in the fact that, you know, no. things have gone to hell. No. Now, we want this to work again. but and, and the question in terms of the power structure in Salem is, when will they do something, Kristen? They will do something when they think their political survival is threatened. And I don't know I don't know how we get that without things like open primaries. That's part of the issue, Well, that's, I think. The, 
you're, you're right. That's, and I, I did listen to that podcast, and I have given that group money because I think um, they've, they, we've got to crack both parties' primaries. It just happens to be the Democrats that are you know, running things now. But there was a time when it was the Republicans. Right. They're right. not They're not innocent in those. Uh, certainly not. And Derek Clevenger will say that. I mean, Derek Clevenger will say the Oregon, he says it all the time, the Oregon Republican Party is its own worst enemy. They are. I mean, you know, they, they could have, the Oregon Republican Party could have taken any of these crises we have discussed today. The, the LaMotta thing, the, uh, the, the, uh, the scandal involving the cryptocurrency, and 110, any one of those should have been enough to basically leverage five or six legislative positions. And you know what five or six legislative positions would mean? It would mean flipping the House and Senate to the other side and a Republican speaker and a Republican president of the Senate. But that didn't happen, and it's not going to. Yeah, I mean, this will take some a fair amount of time, it sounds like, for the and that's, people in charge of this state to get in line with its own constituents. It does. Their and, own constituents. And that's one of the reasons to... to there's a great line by T.S. Eliot, I'm going to screw it up, is to... The, the end of all of our adventures is to arrive at the place we, from which we started and know it for the first time. And... In this case, that's measure 110, and that that is the source of so many of, of, of the worst of the problems. And it's not that it's an easy fix, but the one thing that could be done to at least take and it's like resetting you know, your, your cable system is shutting the power off and, turn, and rebooting it. And in this case, basically saying, and again, I don't expect the legislature to do that. So all I'm asking them is oh, just I, I put it either. on the ballot. That's all. If the vote, if you know what, if they're right and the voters have faith in them and faith in the law, voters will vote to, you know, say no, don't repeal. But I, I think there'll be a very different result. But we we got to put the heat to them, and I hope you'll. I know you'll discuss that with. Um, with with Kevin and Betsy and Max or I don't think it'll be Kevin I think it'll be Betsy and Max Josh what parting words can you leave us with that can provide us with some hope because I'm well, not the, feeling a lot of it right now Oregon has always been a state that it, that that politically can happen because it is small enough that you can hold people accountable and this is another example of that is that um the people who listen to your podcast have the ability to reach out to legislators, and I will bet that from a socioeconomic standpoint, probably most of them would, most legislators would take the calls if somebody made them. Now, they, they, it may be just that they're being nice and politic and don't want to tick off that particular doctor or lawyer or community leader or whatever. It doesn't matter. They'll take the call. If there was a belief in the political substructure in this state, that there was, in fact, the kind of ground root support because that the DHM poll you're talking about was devastating. I read it, I, but I can tell you what the response of the Democratic leadership was. It's an Emerson poll. That it was, it was, it was, that it yeah. was a push poll done by the Portland Police Bureau 
or the Portland Police Association, and therefore we don't have to listen to a darn thing it says. Sure, the DHM poll was by the Portland Police Union, but the Emerson poll was not. Well, it it, it almost wouldn't matter. The first two-thirds of the questions on the DHM poll was not a push poll. It was very straightforward. And and the numbers were, to me, incredible. They were in the 70 to 80 percent range. I mean, you just don't see stuff like that. Yeah, the DHM poll is the the poll that the Portland Police Association commissioned, but as Aaron Schmaltz, the head of the Portland Police Association, the police union, said when he came on, he didn't come up with the questions because, look, if the poll had come out now, I didn't ask him this directly, but my guess is if I inject him with true serum and I said, Aaron, if the poll came out bad for you, would you have released it publicly? I'm sure it would have been a no. Right. But it, he has no reason to craft the questions. If he just well, allows he, DHM to craft the questions. I, I'm an old politician. I, I read that poll and the first time I saw any evidence of a push poll was about 80% through in the last few questions that were quite technical about the process by which police discipline happened, which, believe me, the police bureau, the police association cares deeply about. They don't like it. I don't blame them. But it's a fairly complicated issue, which I don't think really lights the public up. It's about union representation, things like that. But the other stuff about do you think Oregon's general, going the right yes. way and is it seriously bad, those were – it doesn't matter what the intent was. That's like, you know – It's a very open-ended question. Right. And, you know, it wouldn't – everybody has opinions. I mean, if I – you know, as a, as a trial lawyer, if I start opening – you know, if I'm talking to a jury and at the beginning of the case, if I tell them, which, you know, the, they will, that they have to presume with the defendant being presumed innocent – but at the end of my case, the question is, are, have we convinced them beyond a reasonable doubt? And if the answer in that case is that, you know, 12 of them say, no, you've convinced me. In this case, we're not talking about that level. We're talking about something almost that high. I mean, we're talking about something where something like 70 or 80 percent of, of the respondents are saying we're headed down the wrong path fatally. Now, I get that a lot of people in the power structure and in Portland want to look out these very windows and look at a different slice of, of this window that I'm looking at. And if I look at that one... Yeah, we're I, downtown right now, right by the downtown yeah. library. You know, it, And if you look at this and not that, people can't see what I'm talking about. You can say, hey, that's, that's beautiful, the trees, everything else. But you just can't do that. And, and it's not a question of trying to, you know downplay the current administration, it's delusional. It's sort of like somebody who is seriously in debt and and close to That's bankrupt right. and right. says, I've got a nice car in my garage and look at the fancy TV set I have. That is not a demonstration of your financial status. And I think we we can look around at the city we love and the state we love and and tell that we don't need to be smacked in the head that things are headed. And the question is, are we in that portion where you can recover the, the, the nosedive? Can we pull back on the, on the, on the stick, so to speak, uh, that is the state of Oregon, that is the city of Portland? Can we recover from this dive or are we going to spiral in? And what's your conclusion? What's what's your? I, I'm I'm an optimist. I always think. I always hope that there is the possibility. 
I'd hate to think that we are in, in What a do you desperate. actually think? I know what you hope. No, I, I, no, I really believe that. I, I have not been... Well, that gives I've, me hope. That, that actually gives I've me hope. I've never been in a place, and, and I, I've been on the losing end of many, many political arguments, and I can't believe that Oregon and Portland is beyond redemption. Now, maybe I'm wrong. But and I really don't want to believe it, but I think it's possible. It just requires the elected leaders paying attention to the voters and and to the people that you know that hire them to you know you know which fill requires in the blank. us to get busy and like you said, Josh, start working the darn phones and the emails to reach out to your representatives in state government to reach out to your governor reach out to governor Kotek and her this staff this is a small enough state that i can guarantee you show that, up that at these people, legislative if hearings if people call their legislators people who listen to your podcast call their legislators particularly outside of the window of the special session when they'll be hard to get and where when will that be now, for example, but now okay. I'm trying to remember. I think the special session starts second full week in February. So the next couple weeks, last couple weeks in January are a really important So it's important a pivotal time. time right now. I'm sorry? This is a pivotal time Absolutely. to reach because, out because to your legislators. Because it's not like a regular session where, in fairness to them, they'd say, we have 100 things on the agenda. They don't have 100 things on the agenda. They can only deal with two or three things. And one of them is this giant, huge, you know, pulsing problem out there that nobody, that many people don't want to talk about. And, you know, and, the, and frankly, the easiest solution is just put it on the ballot. Put it on the ballot in May or put it on the ballot in November. It, they don't have to appropriate a dime. There's going to be a May election and there's going to be a November election. And all you'd have to say is, should we continue Measure 110 or should it be repealed? You can have six words, the end. And if it's repealed, then the legislature, you could count on the legislature to craft a newer, better version, maybe with some of the ideas that Max and Kevin have. But start afresh with a non-corrupt process. I.e. a process that isn't funded by special outside interests. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we all know what a, what a, what a straightforward process would look like, or at least a straightforward question to start afresh and, and not something that, you know, presumes that, oh, we're going to have a quarter billion dollars that's going to go to a special group that's going to get rich off this. No. Not, not that hard to do, really. Josh Marquis, former Clatsop County District Attorney, you can find him at, is it Costier.com? Costier.com. And thanks to your wife for helping set that up. That's a nice central place to find you and the kinds of stuff that you're involved in. And can people contact you there? Can they send you They emails? can. I have a listed telephone number, 503-791-0012. Well, nobody else on this program has been that bold except for <laughs> Julia Brim Edwards. And I want to congratulate you both on giving out your telephone number. Josh, thank you so much for coming back on. I really enjoy talking to you uh, at length, frankly, every time you're on here and, and when you're not, when we're just uh, in touch over email or something. It's a lot of fun. And so I, I really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you for having me, Kristen.